Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and with me is my good buddy, Al, from Italy. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing great. And uh, we are here today. It is episode 90. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We are going with the old numbering scheme again for marketing reasons, as we discussed previously. And today we're going to talk about a film called Carnal Circuit, also known as The Insatiables. And uh, I wanted to do something real quick. I thought about this the other night when I was watching the film. Um, I know, Al, that you do like English as a second language teaching for Italians, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do is the opposite. I want to... Try to pronounce the Italian title for this film, and you can tell me, give me a score, tell me if my pronunciation is, how is it? Okay. Um, so the first word is femmine, right? Is that where the accent goes? Femmine. Uh, I think for that word, the accent would be on the first syllable. So femmine. Fem- femmine. Mm-hmm. And then the second word is... Here, I gotta practice this one. Insaziabili. Insa Insaziabili. Is that right? Okay, the accent for that would be on the third syllable. So it would be insaziabili. Insaziabili. Mm-hmm. So femmine insaziabili. Oh wow. That sounds a lot nicer <laughs> than what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, does that translate to an insatiable feminine or female? It's plural. So insatiable females or, right, yeah, insatiable females. Mm -hmm. Well, they they certainly are, if you watch this film already. 
Um, absolutely insatiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's not just the females either. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> I mean, everybody's insatiable. I don't know why they're singling out the women. Anyway, uh, before we get into that film, uh, just wanted to say Happy New Year, obviously, to everybody. And um, just to give you more details on the show, where we're going, uh, what we're doing. This is episode 90. I wanted to start gearing up for episode 100 by kind of planning out the next 10. From this episode up until episode 99, I've kind of plotted out which films I'd like to cover. My objective, just as an individual, was to do a deep dive into the proto-period, just to get a sense of how the genre evolved. But I think 10 more, if that's what we're going to do, will be enough. Because I was reminded in reading the article that we're going to talk about in a second, that Jalo films really should be also horror films. And when you watch some of the ones from the proto-period, they're really not. They can either be like spy or police procedural, or they could be sexy, or they could just be thrillers with some sort of mystery. But once you get into, you know, the films that came out in, from 70 to 75, most of them are the ones that have a horror tinge to them. So if we finish up um, the rest of these proto jolly, that we can then kind of focus on moving forward and getting to the films that I've just not gotten a chance to watch yet that came out after Bird. Um, But speaking of Bird, the plan is to get to episode 100 and have a big Jalo Chow Chow reunion with Matt and with Eric. Would do like a a four-person participation podcast where we go back and talk about Bird with the Crystal Plumage a second time, which would be kind of an anniversary of the first episode ever of the Chow Chow. So that's kind of where we are. What do you think? That sounds like a lot of fun for the hundredth episode. It'd be like a Chow Chow All Stars. <laughs> yes. And it would be uh, great. And plus neither you nor I have spoken about uh Bird on the podcast. Exactly. And I think it's probably been long enough that maybe they have some new or different ideas about it. <laughs> if they watch it again too so you think 10 years is long enough <laughs> maybe <laughs> well my opinion of movies can change from one week to the next yes yeah, so exactly <laughs> i might not should say that on a movie podcast but back to what you were saying a minute ago about jolly being horror films also back in the early 80s when my aunt was taking me to the cinema to see these films she never referred to them or we never referred to them as jolly for right. her they were just horror films you know let's go see a scary movie or a horror right. film right and i wasn't really aware that they were called anything besides that until you know, after i probably moved back here and jolly became a subgenre that people were catching on to hmm. like the chow chow podcast and others yeah for me they were just particularly uh italian horror films and huh. i never really put together all the the tropes you know because i never really considered them all as a group they were just uh random isolated films that i would see here and there and of course there's going to be some 
black glove killer, but I didn't think of it as a specific genre of horror films with a black glove killer and you know all those things on the the Jalo score list. I never put it together at yeah. the time. What's interesting to me is as somebody who I was into Italian horror um, from the time that I was, I'm going to say 13, 14, which is, you know, the late 80s. And we've talked about this before, but, you know, there was already discussions about Dario Argento and how hard it was to get his films. Um, mm-hmm. the, the idea of Giallo really wasn't something in you know, in my, in the front of my consciousness back then, it was more like, I'm just watching these films because I want to see outrageous, you know, gore or whatever. But it wasn't too long after that, I ordered this book from, it was in a catalog somewhere. It was called Blood and Black Lace, The Essential Guide to Italian Sex and Horror Cinema or something like that. And um, it's like a paperback, but it's a large format um, like graphic novel size. And it was like filled with movie posters and descriptions of these films that I had never heard of, except maybe one or two. And I recognized films names like, you know, I recognize names like Fulci and Argento and stuff like that. There's a foreword in that book that was written by Ernesto Gastaldi. And he starts talking about the word giallo. I think by the time I got to be an adult and I was... In my early 20s, I started recognizing the idea that this subgenre exists. It has a category attached to it. And then that's when I jumped into it and tried to get my hands on as many as I could. And especially the ones that Argento did, because being an Argento fan, I was like, ah, I need to see more of these because I'm into this new thing now called Giallo and Argento made some and I haven't seen them. Um, and then, of course, there was that added excitement of trying to f- obtain a copy of these things. And, you know, how right. how good of a copy can you find? And can you find it in English? And can you find it correctly framed and not, you know, in a four to three cropped, you know, version and so on? So, right. but that's weird to me that, you know, when you went to see them, they didn't call them Jalos or Jolly. Um, but I think if you, you know, like with the directors or the people that are involved with the films referred to them that way, I think. People in general might have. It's just I wasn't really discussing them with a bunch of cinephiles. And the only person I was going to see them with was my aunt. Okay. And for her, they were just horror films. Yeah. You know? She she might have said the word Jalo, but I'll, you know. You yellow. weren't paying attention. Yeah. What's a yellow movie? You know, because I was like 12 <laughs> at the time. And um, she would take me to see other types of films, too. It wasn't just Jolly. But it's not like we were sitting around discussing Fulci and Argento and how right. this movie relates to that one. And I don't think I – well, I think I said last time I didn't really pay attention to who was directing anything until I was around 16 or 17. Sort of, kind of moving on. Um, 
there was an article that popped up in my newsfeed on January 1st of 2023, and it's on Collider.com. And I think Collider at one point might have been a hard copy publication. Maybe it was always a website. I can't remember. It sounds familiar. I've heard the name before. Yeah, yeah, it sounds. It definitely sounds familiar. Uh, the article title is From Blood and Black Lace to Deep Red. These are the best Jalo horror films. And again, when I read that title, that's why I brought this up a little earlier. When I read that title of horror films, I'm like, you know what? We have been doing so many films that really aren't horror films. Um, like the movie we're going to cover today, it's not a horror film at all. It's not even close. I mean, it's no. an interesting film. There's a mystery to it. Um, it's entertaining, but there's, there are no suspenseful scenes. There's no, you know, crazy murder sequences or anything like that. It's not a horror film. It's not scary in any way. Um, and that's really what right. I think at least Americans, um, expect from, their Jalo film. And if you look down the list, I guess what I wanted to do with this article is present it to you, Al, and then present it to the listeners. And I will put a link to the article in the show notes for anybody who wants to read it. But you can also just search, you know, Collider, okay. um, best Jalo horror films to find it that way. They have a list. And what I do like about this list is it's not numbered. It's not like this is number one, this is number two. It's just a list um, in chronological order of when they were released. And so, of course, the first three are Girl Who Knew Too Much, Blood and Black Lace, Bird with Crystal Plumage. I don't think anybody would argue that all three of those are really important. Um, but are they the best Jalo horror films? I would say maybe Bird is. And when I think back to these other two, Girl Who Knew Too Much and Blood and Black Lace, they both have a horror element to them. Um, mm -hmm. Not so much Girl Who Knew Too Much compared to Blood and Black Lace, but I think they both do have this, you know, Bava was really good at suspense and imagery and the whole moodiness, especially the black and white stuff that he did. So I guess the question is, you know, uh, would we include these in our list of, the best Jalo horror films? I would. What do you think? I'm a little colder towards the girl who knew too much than a lot of people seem to be. Um, I understand that most people consider that the first Jalo, but to me, it's just, it seems more to me an extension of Baba's black and white period. Maybe that's just because I'm a moron and I see black and white and I lump it in with this other black and white stuff like um, <laughs> black, no, uh, black Sunday, black or Sunday, the ones and with black Barbara Sabbath. Steele. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think black Sabbath was black and white though. No, it wasn't um, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess just black Sunday or oh, the mask of the demon or whatever the alternate title is. Um, I do like blood, blood and black lace a lot. So just personally, that's where I start the clock for Jalo. So I'd say two out of those three. Cause I mean, you can't deny the, the effect that both of them had, you know? Yeah. So. Well, and I think we all do this. Uh, I've seen it discussed ad nauseum 
or ad infinitum, depending on whether you get nauseous from it or not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've seen it discussed a lot on Facebook, which is if you wanted to recommend uh, movies to someone who'd never seen a Jalo before, um, which ones would they be? And I think that that's probably, you know, the premise when this person is writing this article, you know, I'm going to introduce you to Jalo films and here's the ones you should watch. So, those three, sure. And then the next one on the list is The Short Night of Glass Dolls. And at first I was like, ah, you know, there's so many other ones I would put on this list before this one. But if we're talking about horror as kind of an extra bit of description about these films, then Short Night of Glass Dolls kind of fits the bill because it is kind of a horror film. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one? Yeah. I have. Uh, it's kind of an outlier for Jolly, though, because it doesn't really, I think, follow a lot of the tropes that we would expect. Right. And the motive for the killing seems to be kind of inspired by uh, Rosemary's Baby. Yes. Where there's this group of older people who are like in this little satanic cult type thing and there's a lot of political allegory going on because it takes place on the other side of the iron curtain yes uh on the other hand it has barbara bach in it so yeah i'll watch it (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean i like it as a film but it i wouldn't tell somebody to watch it as an example of a jalo yeah if they were just getting started yeah because it's kind of like the anti-jalo jalo Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it breaks all the rules, you know, um, yeah. if you, you know, and again, we make the, uh, we make the assumption that people reading this article and that people watching these films know what the rule set is, you know, <laughs> and right, yeah. they maybe not. So the next couple, uh, a lizard in a woman's skin, I definitely would throw that up there. Um, mm-hmm. And Bay of Blood. I think Bay of Blood is important because it seems like if there was a proto-period for slasher films, I think Bay of Blood is the beginning of that period with Torso being part of that period too. Um, Yeah. Especially since in Bay of Blood, um, they had, you know, you had the two-person, you know, sex scene impaled together between both bodies through the bottom of the bed stabbing scene. And it was, it was, it was basically recreated in Friday 13th part two. Um, Right. But also I think, you know, Bava's Bay of blood is like a body count movie. It's the first, it's one of the first body count movies. Yeah. Yeah. I think that belongs on the list just because of its uh, influence with the slashers that started later. And getting back to lizard woman skin, we talked about that a couple episodes ago about how I've found a new uh, appreciation for it. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, it's um, yeah, it's definitely one. I, I, if I, I guess, you know, you have to say if Fulci made four, films that people regard as uh jolly um the first one being perversion story which was a proto jolly sorry 
I get my pronouns and my singulars mixed up. Um, it was a proto giallo. And mm-hmm. then you had um, lizard and woman skin and don't torture a duckling and the psychic. I think those are the four. Um, well, New York Ripper. Oh, yeah, that's right. Don't forget New York Ripper. Because the psychic has that supernatural element that right. a lot of people automatically uh, disqualify yes. for being a Jalo. Yep. And New but, York Ripper yeah. is, is is kind of like a 80s slasher to a certain extent. And it kind of appeals to the slasher. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that people will disqualify a film from being a Jalo if there's a... Uh, some sort of psychic or supernatural element involved. And yet that's the first 10 minutes of deep red, which is at the top <laughs> of everybody's Jalu lists, you know, or that's, in the top <laughs> end. So that's a good point. I never thought of it that way. I think that maybe the, yeah, no, cause I mean, really, if you consider the premise of deep red, the whole reason why the killer starts killing is because the psychic has kind of um, outed the killer in an, in this in, in a psychic way. Like I like the premise of the beginning of the movie is if if I remember correctly, there's a psychic conference and the person who is the killer is actually in the audience, and uh-huh. the killer starts sending psychic thoughts to the psychic who has this little fit of rage and, and uh, terror on the stage. And as a result, the killer has to start killing again because I think, uh, is it Helga or Olga? One of those two character names, Helga. She, she says, I know who it is. You know, I know who the person is. So um, I'm going to write this down. And that that's what triggers the killings again. You're right. Um, On the other hand, maybe she wasn't much of a psychic because she should have known to shut the fuck up. (laughs) Or she should have known that the killer was coming. You know, there's that scene in Deep Red where she goes to the door uh, right before she gets like the hatchet, you know, right in her shoulder or wherever it goes. Um, Mm -hmm. And when she goes to the door for a second, she backs away in fear and she goes, (gasps) She takes like this big inhale of fear. And I always wondered whether she got a psychic like charge or whether she looked through the peephole. Like, I don't, I don't know which one it is. Like, why did she do that? Why did she have that reaction when she went to the door? Did she see who it was or did she get a sense of it? You know? I, I don't know. (laughs) I have to watch it again. But that's, that's the thing that I fall back on every time there's, Anything psychic, you know, whether it's people talking in real life or some plot point in a TV show or a movie. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to poke holes into. Right. If the psychic sense that somebody in the audience is a killer, I mean, I wouldn't have to be a psychic to say if there is somebody in the audience as a killer, don't talk about it. Don't mention it, and especially don't say I know who it is, because, <laughs> right. and I live at this place and ring my doorbell at 10 o'clock tonight when I usually order a pizza, I'll let you in. It's like, um, 
I used to see those commercials for like Madame Cleo or whoever it was that had the one nine hundred number that you could call the psychic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking if she's yep. a psychic, why didn't she call me? You know, but <laughs> or these psychics yeah, are going to give you the winning lottery numbers. And, uh, <laughs> why do they have? They'll to tell advertise? you all about it for like ten dollars <laughs> a minute. No, any psychic that has winning lottery numbers is not concerned about you. That's funny. They're off somewhere collecting their millions. But <laughs> why did they call me? That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, I I watched this one documentary where they were um, interviewing Ernesto Gastaldi, and he basically said, um, "If you put something into the script that cheats uh, the answer to the mystery." then it's not a giallo. Um, right. And typically the whole psychic thing or the whole um, fantastic, you know, supernatural excuse uh, is the one that people throw in there in order to kind of explain away the things that they couldn't explain away logically. And I guess that that was, that was his thoughts about the genre and maybe he was coming from a place where that was the general, generally accepted thoughts of the genre. But you also have to consider, you know, if Argento made three Giallo films and then in 1975 decided to make another one, then perhaps he was trying to, you know, challenge, you know, what was happening. Because most people say that Deep Red is kind of like, um, Argento kind of making fun of the genre to a certain extent, or at least, you know, trying to create a film within the genre that breaks the rules of the genre. Although, you know, people say dumb shit about Argento all the time. I don't know. Well, you could <laughs> you say know. that about Tenebre also. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Especially from its from its visual standpoint, right? I mean, I think for Argento, Deep Red was more him reasserting his dominance over the subgenre that so many people were clamoring to rip off and copy. Yeah. And he had tried to go in other directions with that uh, Five Days in Whenever movie. Yeah, right. And he came back to it. So maybe for Jalo fans, is disqualifying if the killer – or the the evil whatever that's doing the bad stuff in the film is a supernatural thing, right? So you could you could include a psychic character who's like, oh, somebody here's a killer, but then the the, the actual killer turns out to be a, a real person, right? 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 Exactly. Uh, I haven't seen the psychic or Seven Notes in Black or whatever it's called in a while, so I don't really remember. Um, I think the ultimate victim in that film was the psychic. She was having uh, visions flash that she thought was the past and it turned out to be the future or something or she yeah, thought yeah, it was yeah. somebody else. That's and, right. Yeah. I haven't seen that in a um, while. It's got that it's got that nineteen eighties Lucio Fulci kind of soft glow about everything. Like the it's yeah. almost it's almost like they put Vaseline on the camera. 
It, it, I was thinking that myself. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know it's that, got that like, soft porn ones going. Yeah, on. yeah, right. And 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 New York Ripper is not like that at all. But if you watch um, Murder Rock, which is another Fulci film that people talk about being a giallo, um, it looks like that too. Mm-hmm. And then there's another movie. Uh, what the hell was it called? Fulci put out another movie in the eighties. Um, the, the Devil's Honey. No, it had something to do with uh, some sort of ancient burial ground ripoff <laughs> movie. I don't. I, I can't remember what it was called. <laughs> it was from the eighties. All I remember is there's a scene where some dude gets like pulled in both directions, and his body splits down the middle vertically, and it's kind of gory, and his intestines fall out. Yeah. That's what I remember. I don't remember what it's about. I just remember that. But okay. Um, okay. So what else is on the list here? Uh, don't torture a duckling. I'm really surprised that they included lizard in a woman's skin and don't torture a duckling. It's kind of like you need to to pick one because um, there are so many more films to put on this list from 1972 um, mm-hmm. or not even from 1972, but just from, from different directors. Like there's no Sergio Martino on here. And I would say that they really should have included either the case of the scorpion's tail or, um, uh, the one with Edwidge, uh, strange vice of Mrs. Ward. One of those should be on this mm-hmm. list. Um, don't torture a duckling is a good film and it's got the horror aspects to it. Um, it's different than any of the others because it's not an urban kind of thing. And I definitely mm-hmm. would put it on a list. I guess it really depends on the number, right? When they say, oh, give me your top five versus give me your top 10. Right. Um, I don't know if Duckling makes the top five, but it may make the top 10. So I don't know. Yeah, I would if if I had to pick one Fulci, I think that would be it. That's the one. Even over the other ones. Okay. Yeah. Even over New York Ripper, which I'll you know, I have no problem considering that a Jollo, but I just I didn't really care for it too much. Yeah. Um understood. One on top of the other seems more like a proto Jollo, especially since we've been looking at those recently. Yeah, definitely. And what was the other one? Um, Lizard woman skin. Well, yeah. Yeah. That one's a little sidestep for the Jalo genre also. I mean, it's still a Jalo, but it's one of those weirder ones. Yeah. Kind of like uh short nine of glass dolls was, you know, not exactly what you expect for a Jalo. Yeah, and and, it was interesting and it was good. Yeah, and you may be right uh, when it comes to defining one of these two between duckling and lizard. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. you know, you got the animal names or the animal things going on. Um, right. And when I think back to duckling, it is more of a classic killer is on the loose uh, Jalo film compared to lizard in a woman's skin and maybe we, we change our minds and opinions about movies, you know, as time goes on. And maybe the reason why 
Lizard Woman skin is my new favorite is because I've been watching so many proto-Jalo films. And I'm kind of into that 60s, like, hippie vibe, um, which, you know, is done in spades in Lizard Woman skin, where it's not really done in Duckling, but, you know. Yeah. Next on the list is what have you done to Solange? And I would absolutely include that in the top five. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorite Jalo films for sure. Yeah. I have no problem with that one being on the list. Uh, there's just, there's just so much that's great. That's going on in that film. It's, it's an urban location. We've got, you know, an outsider who's being accused of being a killer who has to try to figure out what's really going on. You've got, girls you've got horror you've got slasher you know it's it's great i love it and it's got some deep deepness to it it's not you know a silly film like um eyeball or uh (laughs) strip nude for your killer not that those shouldn't be on the list because at least one of those two should be but um for different reasons yeah well this is more serious like you said and it's has some social commentary right going on and i think it's interesting that it's not just another film set in rome or turin or milan it's it's in england yep and there there is a lot of stuff in that film that i kind of roll my eyes at but in a kind of fun way yeah even though the the film overall is more serious than like eyeball and stuff like that yeah but it does Uh, have some tongue-in-cheek stuff going on right yeah definitely and plus it's like it's it's also kind of exploitative uh, and gratuitous Mm -hmm. to a certain extent especially like the the way that the killer kills the girls by you know stabbing them in the vagina i mean like it's Right. And one of the eye rolls I was thinking of was when they show the parents the x-ray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> the the murdered daughter. Well, was she raped? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> hey, look at the check. At the, does this answer your question? <laughs> and uh, Fabio Testi's character, he has that little apartment off to the side where he takes his uh, girlfriend. Right. And there's like titty pictures all up on the wall yeah <laughs> it's like dude come on. how romantic um the last two on the list are deep red and tenebrae which we have probably talked about enough already um mm-hmm. but you know again it's it's such a conflict it's so hard to know what to do because on the one hand you say well you know we don't really want to, to suggest films to people that they're not going to like. We want to, you know, we like this genre. We want to turn more people onto it. So we can't necessarily suggest something like Strip Nude for Your Killer for the Uninitiated because they're going to be like, this is ridiculous. Why would I ever watch a film like this? Um, right. But if you take that out of the consideration, then you end up with one, th- three films by Mario Bava three films by Dario Argento, two films by Lucio Fulci. And, you know, then you have 
Solange and uh, Short Night of Glass Dolls, which is the only two on the list that don't have repeat directors. And, you know. And zero Sergio Martino. And no Martino, right. I think he often gets underrated or overlooked when it comes to lists like these. And no uh, Umberto Lenzi, who, if he was still alive, would say, this is a crime because I invented the genre. So, Yeah, he, he invented the whole thing, yeah. He invented uh, moving pictures. Exactly, yeah. And, the, and printable type, yeah. <laughs> In the screens and the lights and... <laughs> the, uh, he probably invented selling popcorn at the theater too. So, so that is uh, the article. Uh, everybody, go out and uh, read it, and um, head over to the Facebook group if there's uh, any interest in discussing what you guys think. I don't know if it 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 eventually will get old, but I never get tired of making these lists of. You know, where would I put my, you know, what's my top five giallo? And maybe that's because that there's still, at least for me, 30%, 25% of the output from this time period that I still haven't seen. So maybe that's the exciting part. It's like, hey, I'm going to put a film on this top five list that no one expects because I just watched it and I think it's awesome, you know, Um, but I don't know. I think a lot of the times that I click on... Uh, you know, clickbait type links for best jolly or uh, most influential jolly or whatever superlative jolly. Half the reason I click on it is because I'm hoping there will be something on that list that I haven't seen or already heard about a million times. Uh, So maybe in a few years, Collider will put out a, you know, the best jolly that nobody's ever heard of. (laughs) <laughs> that would be kind of cool but right. i've probably seen a few of those too, exactly so. you probably definitely have seen a few of those based on what yeah. we've covered over the last uh year or so <laughs> yeah yeah it'd be fun to watch somebody put out a best 100 jolly and try to pick one that chow chow hasn't covered already man no doubt well yeah i mean considering what this is episode 90 and we did a few doubles. I think we've already mm-hmm. covered a hundred films. So, yeah, yeah. But we're the pros over here. Well, let's see. Moving on to the deep dive of this episode, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk about a film called Carnal Circuit, also known as The Insatiables. Good thing 
It was released in 1969. How would you describe it, Al? Like, it's got some spy elements. It's got some sexy elements. It's got some mystery elements. Like, where where does it fall? Like, if you had to say, what kind of movie is this? Well, it's definitely a whodunit to a degree. Right. I mean, there's not a whole bunch of red herrings. Uh, part of it is the twist ending. Yes. Which we'll get to. Uh, I don't know if there is a like a genre name for that type of thing that is going to happen, but I mean we've seen it in films before. Um, like there are elements of this in Naked You Die. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm, I'm not sure what the descriptive word for that particular type of twist is. Yeah. Um. I think it has a lot of social commentary. There's kind of a mystery, but not really. It's more like not who done it, but exactly who did it. Yeah, you know? what exactly happened? Yeah, and then at the end you find out that it was something totally different. The the thing that I kept jumping to was, you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but. The, the story is told in flashbacks and it reminded me of Citizen Kane. You know, here's, huh. here's a newspaper reporter who something happens and he goes and interviews and talks to five different people about the same person mm-hmm. and their stories are told as flashbacks, which is the way that the Citizen Kane movie is, is, is put together, you know. So that's right. what kept coming to my mind. But it's got, it's got some elements of, I, I don't want to say spy because there's it's it's not spy it's not a spy movie, but um, there is that same kind of suave kind of uh, mindset or or style that goes along with the film that reminds you of some of the, um, you know, spy films. Like there's an there's another movie which we haven't covered yet called um, Date for a Murder um, uh-huh. that reminds me of this film and Date for a Murder uh, I think is a couple of years earlier than this but anyway I'm jumping ahead um, let's talk about uh, the film itself the production information the actors and so on go ahead Al I'm gonna give you the mic okay this is an Italian and German co-production. And as we've mentioned earlier, it does have alternate titles, including Femine Insatiabili. The German title was Mord im Schwarzen Cadillac, which means Death in the Black Cadillac, which is in, <laughs> which at least is related to part of the film. Yeah. I don't see why you'd call the whole film that, but, <laughs> uh, Apparently, another title that I found, maybe on the Wikipedia page, was simply Beverly Hills. But that doesn't indicate anything about the film other than it takes place in California. Well, let me let me jump so, out for a second because okay. you said the German title is Death mm-hmm. in a Black Cadillac. Right. And it was released in Germany in late 1970. Um, and you know that whole idea of the word death and a color 
and an animal mm-hmm. name is kind of like the formula for these these films. So maybe that's why they named it that. Because like you said, it's kind of pertains to something that happens in the film, but you know, death in a black Cadillac or seven deaths in a cat's eye or uh, the red queen, right. you know, so. And I guess the Cadillac was meant to indicate that it's American. Yeah. Cause yeah. I don't, I don't know how many Cadillacs are being sold in Europe or Germany specifically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know oh. Cadillacs in Italy don't do very well because most <laughs> of the streets are too small. For them to squeeze down. <laughs> That's probably why all the American uh, Italians drove Cadillacs when they came over here in the, uh, yeah. In the mafia films. My great uncle, the brother of my maternal grandmother, uh, he had moved to America and bought a Cadillac and he brought it back with him when he returned to Italy. And my father loves to tell me the story about how he was driving in Ostuni, which is a very old city in southern Italy where my mother's family lives. And he got the car stuck in an alley (laughs) and he could not open the doors and they had to smash his back window for him to crawl out. uh, A lot of people were mad at him for blocking (laughs) that alley for until they could wrench it out of there with a tow truck. Dude, that's such an awesome story. It was the alley right behind my grandmother's house. So the next time I go down to Ostuni, I'll, I'll take a picture of that alley. <laughs> That's maybe awesome. Photoshop a Cadillac. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll put it on the website. We'll put it on the uh, on the on the Facebook page. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Okay. Um, according to Wikipedia, which I'm I'm losing more faith in every time I have to go to it, it said this film was shot in Rome, and uh, Obviously, it wasn't because most of the exteriors are easily identifiable as Los Angeles. Maybe they did all the exterior shots in like one week, bouncing right. around L.A. real quick. And then all the interior shots might have been done in Rome at Cinecittà or one of the movie studios. Yeah, there. right. Well, that, and, you know, that, it's a good point because even when you watch the first scene... Um, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a car, it's not a car chase, but it's like the main character is being followed by these thugs. And if you watch the film and pay attention, you'll see that the Robert Hoffman character, uh, Paolo, he, he's mm-hmm. driving, he's actually driving. You can see out the window where he is. Yeah. And then if you see the, the two thugs that are following him, you can, it's clear that they're in a studio car. And, it, you know, lights are being shown on their faces to, you know, to kind of mimic like street lights and stuff. So right. I think, you know, it's a technicality that Wikipedia says that the film was made, you know, it was filmed in, in, in Italy because the interior shots probably were. But it definitely takes place in Los Angeles, for sure. And in the opening credits, there is a special acknowledgement to... And they're thanking Marineland in L.A. for mm-hmm. the use of their facilities, yep. which comes in in the, the very towards the end of the At film. At the end, yeah. Right. And any car, well, like I said, with the, the exterior shots, anytime you see a car, and I looked because 
Italian license plates in the 70s were a lot different than American license plates. Okay. And all the cars have American license plates, or at least non-Italian. So they definitely, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, The filming took place, and this is something that surprised me, between February 68 and February 69. So this thing took a year to make. Wow. And I wonder if that had to do with... uh, Maybe they had shot all of the interior things in Rome, and it just took them a long time to get everything together to yeah. do the L.A. stuff or not. That's probably true. Yeah. But because this wasn't such a huge, successful movie, nobody's written articles about you know, the filming of <laughs> Carnal Circuit exactly. or whatever the hell you want to call it. You know, If it was 2001, yeah, you know, you could read Kubrick's diary notes every minute yeah he was filming it but it's a safe bet that we were probably the first two people that ever wondered about this yeah (laughs) maybe we should write the book (laughs) (laughs) to send this podcast to a stenographer (laughs) there you go (laughs) print it out uh the director is alberto di martino and he's also one of the writers he's credited for uh coming up with the story well he and somebody else uh he has directed 28 films between 61 and 85 covering all the typical italian subgenres. um one that i'm kind of curious about seeing is called the killer is on the phone which came out in 1972 mm-hmm. and stars telly savalas uh the other story Credit goes to Vincenzo Flamini, who used different names throughout his career, including uh, Vincenzo Manino, Vincent Mann. And later in his career, he called himself Frank Walker or Frank Weller. But he wrote all kinds of stuff, including things we might have heard of, such as Five Women for the Killer and Murder Rock, which we mentioned earlier, and New York Ripper. So he has some Hmm. Jalo writing cred. Nice. The screenplay itself was written by a woman named Leonella Carell. And that's probably an Americanization where they dropped off a vowel at the end of her last name. Uh, She was an actress and a writer. And she played the wife of the protagonist in the neorealism classic Bicycle Thieves. Okay. That I, I spoke about. Yeah, we talked about that before. Yep. Ago. Yeah. Uh, so she acted and wrote. Um, I didn't recognize any of the other films that she wrote for. I think later in her career, she did a lot of TV writing and not so much acting. Uh, our cast includes uh, Robert Hoffman, who we just mentioned. He plays Paolo. He is from somewhere in Austria. I haven't looked up exactly which city, but he's Austrian. And we saw him in Black Veil for Lisa from 1968, which we covered. Uh, he was also in Nights and Loves of Don Juan with Barbara Boucher. He was in Dance Steps on the Death Steps on the Razor's Edge. No, Dance Steps on the Razor's Edge. Sorry, I keep getting that mixed up with all the the death stuff. 
films because it has Susan Scott in it mm. or Nieves Nevado. And he was also in Naked Girl Murdered in the Park from 1972. And that definitely sounds like a Jollo, but yeah. I haven't seen it. Uh, the character Julio wasn't, is played um, by Ro- Was he in Spasmo also? Robert Hoffman? Uh, We're ta- are we still talking mm-hmm. about Robert Hoffman? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Robert Hoffman. I think he was. It was Robert Hoffman and um, Susie Kendall. It was a, it was a okay. um, it was a uh, Umberto Lenzi late Jalo. Uh, Nineteen seventy three, maybe. I'm thinking. Oh yeah, seventy four. Seventy four. Spasmo. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, well, I haven't seen Spasmo. Okay. Uh, okay, so the character of Julio. Uh, was played by Roger Fritz, and he is German. Surprise. Uh, born in Mannheim, Germany. He was in a lot of German films that I've never heard of. But he was also in Cross of Iron, which was a Sam Peckinpah World War II film that came out in 77. Uh, that was the only thing that he was in that I've seen. Uh, the character of Vanessa is played by Dorothy Malone. She was from Chicago. She won an Oscar in 1956 for a film called Written on the Wind, which I really? never heard of. Yeah. Wow. I've she won an Oscar as, a, seen as an actress? Like Best, yeah. best Actress? Wow. I, I think it was Best Actress. She played the love interest of Rock Hudson in that film. Huh. Wow. Which is kind well, of interesting. She, she that has that in. old Hollywood kind of look to her. Uh-huh. I mean, in this um, film, I did the... Ma- I, in this film, I did the math. She's 45. And she is... <laughs> she's definitely the oldest looking female in the entire cast. This whole film, I'm watching her, and she's very cougary, right? Yeah. And she's yep. obviously the the oldest female. And you know, we have Romina Power, we have Luciana Paluzzi, who we've also seen before. And every time she came on the screen, I was like, "Oh, the cougar! Look at that <laughs> raggedy old lady trying to, you know." And then I'm researching uh, the production stuff for this, and I realize she was 45, right? Exactly, <laughs> and. I'm about to turn 53, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so I go back and I look at it. I'm like, yeah, that cougar ain't so bad, you know? Yeah, no, look. At least if, she's you not... know, if, if, if uh, Vanessa, what was her character's name? Vanessa Brighton. If she, you know, right. if she came on to me as I am right now, I would probably go for it. But she wouldn't because I'm not. In my, you know, yeah. in my late twenties, you know, she's the cougar. We're too old for cougars. We're too old for yeah. cougars. Yeah, <laughs> that is the subtitle of this episode. We're too old for cougars, which is why yeah. we spend. Our I don't know Saturday, if I should be depressed or not. We spend our Saturday nights talking about these films. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think part of it is that uh, she has, like I said, she has this older Hollywood look. 
but also you know, yeah. the film it's got so many gorgeous young women in it that when she comes on screen you just you just want her to leave you just don't want her to be on the screen anymore you're just like can we, right. can we get yeah. back to one of these other people because there's so many anyway yeah uh, that's well, interesting. Okay. I did not know that she won an Oscar. Uh, so she's a legitimate actress. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting that people can win Oscars and then 40, 50 years later, you've never even heard of the movie. Yeah. And that kind of puts the current Oscar situations in some kind of context, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Like, I remember when Forrest Gump won the Oscar and it beat Pulp Fiction. I was so angry. Yeah. And now it's... It, kind of lightens my heart to think that in 40 years people would be like uh tom hanks was in this oscar-winning film called forest what what the hell is that yeah so oh yeah well i mean but, look when i ask my kids what are the two things you remember about the forrest gump movie because they've both seen it they say the mm-hmm. box of chocolates and run forest run because these have become memes <laughs> you know um, yeah. But when people talk about Pulp Fiction, they talk a little bit more about it than just those two things. Oh, they so. yeah, they just start reciting the whole film. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it didn't win the Oscar, so it can't be that good. Huh. Okay, so, like I said, in Written on the Wind from 1956, she was a love interest of Rock Hudson. Let's put a pin in that. The year before that, <laughs> she was in a film called Sincerely Yours where she played the love interest of Liberace. Wow. Now, without getting without hitting it exactly on the head, Rock Hudson and Liberace have something in common that <laughs> a lot of people at the time weren't fully aware of, but right. we are aware of now. Yes. And uh so she seemed to be typecast as the woman who goes for the wrong guy maybe. <laughs> if you yeah, want to put it that way. Go. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Starting in the 70s, she mostly did TV work, but she did have a cameo in Basic Instinct. Right. Which I think is a very late, well, it wasn't that long ago, really, but it kind of was. That was an American Jalo, if you ask me. Yeah. Well, I mean, compared to like uh, Dressed to Kill. It's it's a little newer. Yeah, it's, it's newer than that, but geez. How many different ways can I make myself feel old? Uh, (laughs) Right. All right. The part of Mary is played by Luciana Paluzzi, who we saw in Black Veil for Lisa, where she co-starred with the aforementioned Robert Hoffman. She was a Bond girl in Thunderball, and she was in Two Faces of Fear from 72 with George Hilton and Anita Strindberg. She was in The Italian Connection with Femi Benussi and Silva Koshina. She was in 99 Women uh, with Rosalba Neri in 69. I think that was a Jess Franco film. And she's done episodes of Six Million Dollar Man and The New Dick Van Dyke Show. So she's done films in Italy and TV shows in America, uh, including this film, which was shot in America. Uh, the character of Louisa, who is Julio's wife, is played. Was that a sigh? She's my favorite. Oh yeah, she's my favorite in, uh, in the movie. 
Uh-huh. Okay. She's played by Nicoletta Ma- Machiavelli. She was born in Italy in the city of uh, Bravarino, and she has also done all sorts of films, including uh, Polizieski and Spaghetti Westerns and comedies and things like that. And, yeah, you know, I was thinking maybe we should do a, uh, like a F. Mary Kill <laughs> for some of these movies. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that would get us. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, Vanessa Brighton is the Mary for sure. Um, well, <laughs> because she's so rich. Yeah, because she has so much money. Exactly. And she's more age appropriate, maybe. Yeah. Okay. I'd probably have to kill uh, uh, Gloria Brighton because she's just so fucking annoying with the with the car oh and, and the hitchhikers and everything. And then I think you know Louisa Lambert. Lamberti would be the F or maybe one of the hottest girls in the whole movie is only in the movie for like 10 seconds. It's the, in the very beginning, it's this woman who's like, I guess the secretary at the, at the newspaper who comes over to tell, uh, comes over to tell Uh what's the guy's name? Richard Salinger, Richard Salinger. Yeah. He comes over to tell her that, or tell him that um, that that uh, Julio called or whatever. Like she's mm-hmm. she was some sort of insanely hot for her time at during the day actress or yeah. Model. And I have some an interesting fact about her as well. She's like the tail oh, cool. end of my uh, my my cast. Oh, okay, good. we're getting okay, so. Uh, okay, the character of Donovan is played by Frank Wolf. He was born in San Francisco. He had a very short career because, unfortunately, he committed suicide at a very, Mm. well, relatively young age. Wow. But he was in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. It came out the year before this. And he was also in Death Walks on High Heels from 71. Mm Mm-hmm. The character Salinger was played by a Canadian named John Ireland, who seemed very familiar when I saw his face. Like he's one of those those guys, you know, that you've seen, but you really can't place. Uh, looking at his credits, so I couldn't figure out where I'd seen him before. But he was in one on top of the other from the same year. So it seemed like anything shot in California that was close to being a Jollo. He was the the go-to American guy. Uh, The part of Gloria is played by Ramina Power, who we spoke about a bit in the last uh, podcast for Murder by Music. And she was born in Los Angeles. And she did a lot of, uh, well, she did a few films in Italy, and then she pursued a music career. The secretary that you were talking about, and I only noticed this earlier today, I noticed in the opening credits, there was somebody named Any Ass Man. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I I thought, Any Ass Man, uh, I got to find out who this is. (laughs) And it turns out that is Salinger's secretary. And right. she is German, so maybe ass man is not exactly the right pronunciation. 
<laughs> but uh, she was born in Kassel, Germany, and she was in the same year. She was in Death Knocks twice. Oh, and with any luck, she's has more screen time in that than she did in this. But oh, she had. I, I have a, a new few. reason to watch that again. I watched that, uh, and I couldn't take it. It was awful. So, oh, really? I need to try it again. It, it, it may be that you know sometimes the first time you watch a giallo it doesn't take <laughs> so um right. i need to go back to it again and maybe that will be a, a a good reason to watch it anyway okay yeah uh the list that you sent for the ones that were well that you're thinking we'll do in the next year yeah that was the one i could not find a copy of oh anywhere. okay and so hopefully it's on uh youtube or yeah i have like a copy that. of it it's not really a good copy from what I remember. So I don't think it's okay. been widely released. Yeah, I couldn't really. Well, I don't know if it was put out on DVD or not, but the the version that I watched and that I shared with you, it's like a, it's not even official release. Right. It's a fan dub. So for the people that are listening to this, you know, I, and I saw a couple of people respond on various Facebook posts that I put out for last for the last episode that they were unable to find a copy of Murder by Music and um, it's true it's really not necessarily something that you can find okay. for free um, if you I think there's a couple of places that you could pay to watch it but I don't right. know what those are um, and unfortunately this is the case for this movie as well even though I mean it it clearly has a large budget. Um, more than say some yeah. of the films that we cover. So at any rate, I wanted to go back real quick just to the fact that I, I don't know if you're a Seinfeld person, but I watched that episode where Kramer goes to get his license plate <laughs> from the DMV and he accidentally gets a license yeah. plate that says ass man. And it turns out that they were intended for some proctologist and he got, you know, they were, they got mixed up and they said to him, as soon as I saw yeah. ass man, that's the first thing I think. Yeah. Of. The first thing I thought was how have I watched this like three or four times already and not noticed the credit any ass man. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> I must've been blinking every time. And, uh, I think that's all I got for the production stuff. So again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is from 1969, and you should now have a good sense of the background uh, and who's involved in this film. Uh, hopefully, at this point, you realize that uh, we're going to talk about the film in great detail. And if you haven't watched it yet, I suggest that you stop listening and go watch it. And if you continue to listen without watching it, you're going to hear spoilers. Uh, not that there are that many, but... Um, again, I apologize that we picked a film that's kind of hard to find, but, uh, you know, if you're really interested, I would say, you know, you do your due diligence and you'll find it. So, um, with that, let's go through the film. The film opens the theme, the, the, um, the musical theme and jumping ahead as the credits roll, the music credit is, uh, Bruno Nicolai and, What's interesting to me, and I keep using that same word to describe everything, what's interesting to me is that um, we really haven't talked about 
the score or soundtrack composers for most of the films that we've covered lately. And it's probably because there wasn't much of an emphasis on it at this early stage. You know, when you think of Jalo films, you think of Ennio Morricone and you think of Goblin and you think of um, Bruno Nicolai and Fabio Frizzi and um, what's the other one? Riz Ortolani. Um, yeah, Riz Ortolani. And they have a major amount of uh, influence into the way that we feel about these films and why we like them so much. And this was the first time that I paid attention to the fact that, hey, I see a composer's name on the credits here that um, I recognize. And I have to say, it's not, you know, his best work. If you compare Bruno Nicolai's stuff from, um, let's see, uh, Case of the Bloody Iris and Eyeball and um, Red Queen Kill Seven Times. I mean, that stuff is really thematic and, mm -hmm. and just sticks in your head. Um, but other than this main theme that we get uh, for the opening credits, uh, the rest of the music is kind of, you know, forgettable. So um, I was surprised to see his name because I had watched this before the web, uh, before the podcast today, I've watched this probably two other times. So um, I probably would have, or should have noticed the music if it was really important, but it didn't seem to stand out. Um, anyway, uh, the film starts, um, it's a nighttime city drive kind of montage where the credits are coming in, the, the musical theme is playing. We've got one character driving and looking around and we've got another two characters driving. Seems like they're following him. He's keeping... He keeps looking mm -hmm. in his uh, mirror, rear view. Um, if you pay attention close enough, you'll see that this is the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. They drive past the Cinerama, which is a, a very um, famous movie uh, movie house. And I think they also pass the Ming's Chinese Theater at one point. Um, maybe later in the film, I can't remember. Um, and the song that's playing is called I want it all. And it was sung by someone named Laura St. Paul. And I did a little bit of research on her, but I didn't retain any of the information. Um, but she seemed to be a popular singer at the time. There's a picture of her with um, uh, Quincy Jones. So she wow. was yeah. obviously legit, you know, if Casey Jones knew who she was. So um, anyway, uh, at some point, the cars stop and the two men get out and um, they walk into this apartment and we see Paolo, the Robert Hoffman character, who's sleeping in his bed. And the two men just break right in and they start beating him up and um, he throws up. <laughs> and I think that's where one of the, f the first cuts, the first cut scene. No, no, the the. the well, well, they they continue to inter interrogate him. They keep asking him about somebody named Lambert the Smile, which is so stupid. I don't even know why they threw that in. But anyway, um, Lambert the Smile is the character that we eventually meet as Julio. Um, they want to know if he knows where he is. He says he doesn't know anything. 
Um, and then they smush, like they mush his face in his own vomit mm. to try to, I guess, inter- interrogate him further, you know, make him, uh, you know, this is like sort of, it's, it's like the, it's like the, you know, waterboarding <laughs> of Jalo films. It's like, we're, we're going to smash your face in, in your own puke and that's going to make you talk, I guess. Um, but he says he doesn't know anything. And the funniest part about this scene is after they decide that he doesn't know anything, um, they tell him, you know, that he's going to be okay. And that, uh, all the things that they did by punching him in the skull will eventually go away and he'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of weird that the, the thugs that beat you up, give you well wishes (laughs) as they walk out the door. And it seems to me like they give up a little too easily. Uh, right. Anyway. Oh, good. They smack him around yeah, a they little definitely bit, and do. they're like, oh, they I don't think do. he knows like, anything. Yeah, me neither. But they do know that they followed the car to that place. And and by the way, uh, dude was driving a white Cadillac, not a black one. So figure that out, Germany. And even when the guy wakes up, <laughs> right. you know, he hears some noise, so he kind of rolls over and he sees that his uh, terrace door is slid open and the curtain is blowing in the wind. They see it when they come in there and they give up way too easy, if you ask me. If we're going to go through the trouble of you know, barf boarding the guy on his floor, at least... <laughs> I mean, you didn't go into that room by accident we have a new, just we have, for fun. We came up with a new term. You know? And then they say, oh, well, let's go out and look on the highway. Yeah, we'll probably have a better chance of finding them there. <laughs> because he's driving a Dayglow Cadillac. <laughs> yeah, going back out on the highway. Never mind the <laughs> you followed him here and the door to the terrace is open. Yeah. So these guys aren't too smart. And... Uh, well, and his door is unlocked too. I mean, they just walk yeah. right in. It's and and you can oh, you know what? It's interesting. I'm I'm looking at the scene right now. Clearly, this was filmed in Rome or Italy because the bathroom has a bidet in it, and I don't know that they really oh, had those. Gee, in I didn't Los even Angeles. notice that. So I just I mean, it just showed up on my screen yeah. The bidet is a dead so giveaway. Beating him up. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when he throws up, it cuts, in my version, it cuts over to, and you could tell the cut because the, the fidelity of the picture quality is is lower, and also um, the screen size shifts, so you can see right away. Where yeah, and I've noticed that the audio goes to the right channel. Um, it's not, well, yeah. Oh, does it? So. Okay. I don't think I noticed that, but I... I've been okay. listening to it yeah. on speaker. Well, in the headphones, headphones so it's all to one side. It would be something I yeah, wouldn't have there's noticed. There's a bidet. Clear as day. Oh, okay. Boom, boom. Okay. <laughs> so the next thing that happens is as they walk out, uh, Paolo turns to the door and says, <laughs> you can come out now. And um, this man shows up and all of a sudden Paolo goes, hey, Julio. Um and I'm thinking, wait a minute. Um, he didn't know it was his friend until now, but he still put up a fight and pretended not to know anything 
for a stranger. And then not too long after I thought that, Julio yeah, he actually calls him asks, out on it. He's like, you didn't know who I was and you still weren't telling him yeah. anything. And, and Paolo yeah. says, well, it's and, when they hit me that I don't talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. That's what I have here in my notes. It's when they hit me that I don't. I guess that's supposed to be comedy. I hope so, because it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and, you know, you could call me the worst friend in the world. But if I wake up to two dudes pounding me, rubbing my face and vomit because they're looking for somebody and I see somebody's leg sticking out from behind the curtain, whoever you are, he's over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, it's my dad. Exactly. Sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah. What yeah, I didn't know. You know. Oh, you're hitting me? Well, I'm definitely not going to tell you now. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe this they're trying to like establish the fact that he's a newspaper person and they don't really yeah, they don't but, reveal their sources and they're always making sure that they're I don't know. And they're notorious tough guys. Stretch, so. Um right. Well, before he says that line, it's when they hit me that I don't talk. Um Julio um, and Paolo have this discussion. Um, we find out that Paolo writes for a newspaper. Uh, Julio is, I guess he's, I don't know if he's an, a marketing person or just a actor, like a commercial actor or model spokesperson. Maybe that's his, that's his, uh, yeah, I think he says literally the the poster he's boy. He's made enemies and and slash spokesperson. Yeah, I guess. he he's made enemies with um a a, a drug company called Chemical, which is a really <laughs> specific name. Um, and uh, he thinks that the people that had come there to to beat him up want to kill him, and um, that's. Uh, why, you know, that's where they're from. That's who hired them. So um, Julio asks Paolo to find out, you know, can you find out anything for me about why these people are after me? Um, which, of course, we know at this point is a ruse, but it, it, we don't know at this point that it's a ruse, but eventually we realize that it's a ruse. Um, a, the next day, uh, so Julio leaves and, um, there's that line about that's when they hit me that I don't talk the next day, uh, Paolo is, uh, sitting in the cafe. I would assume it's attached to the hotel. He gets picked up by who I guess is his, either his boss or his supervisor or the person who runs the newspaper, whose name is Richard. Um, and they get into, um, this, there's a lot of nice cars in this, uh, in this film. They drive down um, Sunset, again, the same uh, place that we saw from the, the scene mm-hmm. before at, at nighttime. And uh, they talk a little bit about Julio. Um, and then they arrive at this place called uh, the California Herald, which they describe as an independent newspaper. I tried looking it up. I think it's fictitious uh, in the film. Um, there is... Something called the California Herald, if you look it up, but it's it's not a newspaper. It's something else. It's some sort of bulletin board or internet blogging something something. 
Um, anyway, uh, let's see. That's the scene where Ina ass man <laughs> shows up and, um, her name's Molly, which you can tell, um, if you listen closely at the very end of the scene, the guy says, Molly, just bring it over here and we'll put it with the rest of them. And did you catch him slapping her on the ass when she's like, oh, some guy called? No. Yeah, it's right there when they first walk in. And she turns around. She walks up to them, greets them at the door. And she says, oh, Mr. Uh, Lamberti or whatever called looking for Paolo Hooses, right? And then Salinger says something back to her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's just so casually, it's just like, bam, right there on her ass. It's almost like a football player. It's almost like a football player yeah. slap. Like when, yeah, know, like when, when somebody does it, you know, somebody catches a ball or something, <laughs> you hit him on the butt. That is 60s as That's hell. Funny. Good luck doing that today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just have in my notes, Molly is hot, exclamation point. Yeah. <laughs> um. So let's see. Um, Julio calls again. Um, I have that in my notes. Does he call and specifically talk to Paolo? Yeah, he talks to Paolo. Or he calls and talks to Paolo. He says that um, he has everything written down in a diary um, about the chemical company. And he wants Paolo to come out. He's not going to tell him over the phone. Of course. Of he wants course. Paolo, to, uh, Paolo to come out to his house and get the diary. And we see that there are actually two diaries. Um, and, very and much how can like, you tell their diaries? They say diary on them. Bigger than shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as is a common trope that we've talked about before, you know, in the later Jalo films, um, you have the person who knows who the killer is, but can't tell over the phone or just won't say right now, even if they're talking in person, because they have to go back to their house and do something. And, you know, 12 hours needs to go by before they can reveal the information. And in that time, something happens to them. Um, anyway, uh, so Paolo uh, heads off to Julio's place. He's driving down the... Uh, sunset strip again he sees a billboard with julio's face on it and then he has a flashback of the first time it may not be the first time but it's it's a it's a major memory of julio who i guess at this point in his life living in italy he was some sort of an activist uh you know some sort of union kind of delegate or something for you know the working class people but it's also uh the same point in the film where we meet uh, Luisa for the first mm. time. And, um, you know, is that, is that what, is that what Julia was doing? Is that, uh, a, a good characterization of his purpose in this flashback that he was like this, he was like this guy with morals and scruples and, 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 uh, you know, he was fighting for causes that were important, that kind of thing. Yeah, he's standing up for the workers at, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure if this is some sort of construction site or something, but from the conversation with the guy that he's arguing with, 
it seems like he's a little bit above the people holding the picket signs, but he's siding with them, even though he is, uh, I forget the word that they use, but he, he's like a, maybe some sort of manager or like mid-level manager. And he's siding with the striking workers, and they're holding signs that say things like, uh, the workers, let's unite, and we're tired, and things like that. So it seems like he's a very working class person, and he's saying things that are kind of, uh, I guess nowadays you would call them kind of Marxist, because later in the film he calls right. somebody a bourgeois, you know. So it seems like he's very mm-hmm. blue collar and standing up for workers' rights, things like that, which will okay. be contrasted with what happens to him eventually. Yeah, so this is uh, an important scene to pay attention to. If, you know, if the if if the thing that's important to you when you watch this is understanding who Julio really is and this characterization of Julio, because, you know, we're painting him out to be a particular person. And then we find out as the film goes on that he has changed or maybe he hasn't changed. Maybe this is the way he's been, but we don't really know. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, Paolo gets to Julio's house and I, I felt like the scene was a little odd. He goes up to the door, rings the doorbell. Nobody's home. Nobody answers. And then the cops show up and they don't say anything to Paolo. They just go up and start ringing the doorbell. And then when nobody answers, he says, oh, by the way, the guy who lives here was just found dead. Um <laughs> And I felt I found that to be weird because like if the guy who lives there has just been found out to be dead, why would you ring the doorbell to see if he was home? Unless, you know, unless somebody else was there, like you're, you know, the cops are coming to your house to let you know. Well, I think he was going to notify the next of kin. Yeah, right. Because I guess he doesn't realize nobody else lives there. But just seemed weird. It was just it it was an odd scene. Um, but anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. Probably got lost in the translation at some point. Um, so then they, uh, let's see. So there's a scene where Richard and Paolo go to look at the car from the car crash. And, uh, Paolo says, you know, I definitely do not think that this was an accident. Um, you know, the, the road that they were driving on didn't have any curves. It was four lanes. There's no way that he could have run off the road without, um, by accident. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, people are after him and Richard says, okay, you know what? This really is uh front page news. So go and figure out what the hell's going on so you can write the story. Um, so let's see. Um, So the next thing that happens is we see the is a team of morticians who need to get um, Julio ready for the funeral. And a couple of weird things happen. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first one is that, um, well, first of all, obviously, they need to do a lot of work on him because it's not even him. 
Um, <laughs> sorry, everybody, but I just threw a spoiler in there. It, it's not him. It's some other guy that was killed instead, but burned beyond recognition that the morticians needed to reconstruct his face so well that it actually sort of kind of looks like him so that when they have the wake, which in America, you know, they, they have two different words for this. One is called a viewing and one is called a wake. Right. And I don't know how, how it is in yeah. Europe, but it basically it's the time before the actual burial ceremony where people can come and they can pay their respects to the family and they can see the body for some strange reason. I don't know where this yeah. started, but uh, I hope it stops soon. Um, they, they, depending on obviously, you know, how badly the body was injured in its, in its death. Um, if the person died of a heart attack or just died of old age, you know, the morticians come in and they, they, they use makeup to make the person look as close to what they used to look like in, in real life. Um, and they leave them open for people to come in and look at. Um, and in this case, they did it in Julio's house. And later on in the film, uh, they say that this is an Italian custom. So obviously my next question is, is this an Italian custom <laughs> to have a viewing in your house? Well, strangely enough, I have a personal story related exactly to that. Uh, in the early 80s, when we were living down south, the, the first year we lived there, we lived with my grandmother, my aunt, and my great-grandmother, my mom's grandmother, to say. And uh, my great-grandmother was in her 80s, I guess, at that time, around that time. And there was one, she had the, she had a bedroom that was off of the living room, which was the first room that you would go into as you entered the, um, it's kind of like a townhouse. It was a, like a two-story apartment that started above a grocery store that was on the ground level. So you had to go up a stairwell to enter it and you walk into the living room and straight opposite the main entrance was her bedroom. And then there were other rooms further back. Well, one day I come home from school, I get off the bus and I'm walking towards uh, the building where the, the house is. And I notice a lot of cars parked in front of the house. I notice that the front door is open and there's a line of people standing on the steps waiting to go upstairs into the, the townhouse. Wow. And it turned out that while I was at school that day, my great grandmother had died. And she was laying on her bed. Uh, my great aunt, the sister of my grandmother, and my grandmother and some woman who, uh, I don't think it was like a professional type thing. It was kind of like she was just known to be somebody who could do this, would go in there and they would change the clothes because she was just wearing like a nightgown or whatever she'd been sleeping in. And they yeah. dressed her. Her fingers had kind of stiffened with rigor mortis, and this woman that was helping them knew some little old wives' trick to get the fingers to loosen up so you can take the rings off or put rings on, you know, things like that. Okay. And 
my great grandmother's body stayed in that bed in our apartment, well, the townhouse, while we were all still living there for three days before they took it to the. Uh, wow. Yeah. And it was Ugh. pretty creepy and weird. <laughs> and uh, what? And, and by and the what, third day, what, it was, what about time period? This was like how old were you at this point? This must have been, I'd say, probably the spring of '83. So I was thirteen. Okay. okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and you know, maybe it wasn't three whole days, but I know it was at least two days. Well, two nights, because I remember my aunt who, you know, all these times I've been telling stories about my aunt taking me to see movies. She was only like four years older than I was. Okay. Uh, But she would kind of tease me about, you know, there's a dead body in there and Nona, (laughs) great grandmother's going to come haunt you and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I'd kind of gotten over it. But it's weird, you know, you don't expect uh, a dead person to be laying in your house, especially somebody that you knew and saw every day. Yeah. And she hadn't been embalmed or anything. So there was an odor (laughs) by the second day. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it, it struck me. That's why people bring flowers, right? Because all these people that were coming, her bedroom looked like a damn florist shop exploded in it. Wow. And thankfully, it was in the spring where they could open the bedroom windows and kind of let it air out. And they had a fan, you know. But, uh, yeah, she was in the house for a couple days before she got taken off for the funeral. That is amazingly interesting in so many ways, but the one that stands out the most is the fact that we now you have revealed to me a practical an acceptable practical reason for why they bring flowers to a funeral i mean obviously it's also for a tribute and it's for you know it's for emotional reasons but also because if the tradition in the old European uh, life is to have the body in the house and not embalmed, then mm-hmm. you're right. You know, the, the scent of the smell of the flowers would, um, would help the situation. Wow. That's pretty yeah. cool. And I think another leftover from the old days was the amount of time that you would keep the person in the house because it would take longer for the news to get out and it would take longer for the people to, well, the people that want to or should come back to pay respects to get Mm -hmm. there. Uh, Nowadays, you know, somebody can die and you could share it with everybody they've ever met on social media or whatever before the body's even cold. Yeah, right. Exactly. And they could, (laughs) You know, if they're sitting in McDonald's somewhere chomping on a Big Mac, they could book their tickets before they finish their, uh, well, I was going to say Frosty, but that's Wendy's. So I'm making up <laughs> my best. 
their their apple pie Mc, or whatever. Mc, their McFlurry. The McFlurry. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, oh, that's funny. Yeah. But I I think that we still do the flower things, even though there is embalming, and you know nobody except the undertakers probably smell anything from the body. We still do the flowers because I've yeah. been to funerals in the in the states where I know that the body has been embalmed and it hasn't sure. rotted and started to uh, decay or anything decompose at all. And there's still flowers everywhere, but I think that's yeah. where that comes from. Well, and, I mean, in 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 my little corner of the world. Um, the flowers are usually sent with little like sashes, kind of like the same thing that, you know, a beauty pageant person would wear Yeah, across the flowers that have the name of, or the, not even the name, but like some sort of category of, you know, how these flowers, you know, the, the person who sent these flowers, what are their relationship to the person who died? So it would say, you know something like um, cherished daughter or cherished right. granddaughter or something like that, or cherished grandmother. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they, they do that. Um, but I think in the Jewish religion or Jewish custom, I don't know that the body is around, but I know that there is a long time period where you um, go and visit the family. Like the family basically takes, off from everything, school and work and whatever, and basically right. stays in, in their house for, I think, almost a week maybe uh, to basically um, accommodate people that are coming over to to pay their respects. So um, right. yeah. it's interesting. Meanwhile, if you're in Tibet, I think they just burn your body. So um, huh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just making, I'm not making that up, but it just sounded, <laughs> sounded familiar. Um, anyway, so the next weird thing that happens is now that the body is ready for public, for the public, they open the doors and a whole bunch of people with cameras come running in. Um, I guess they invited the press to the funeral for some reason. Um, I don't really know Well, why. They're, they're treating him like he's some big superstar. Yeah. You know, like it was uh, like James Dean just died in a car crash, or you know, and he was the poster boy for deodorant. Right? Who <laughs> gives a shit? Uh, it's not like he was an actor. It's not, right. and they're making it sound like he was so famous that the paparazzi just got to crash the viewing to take pictures. Back then, people who. Uh we're kind of like the spokespersons for marketing. I guess we're kind of famous in a certain way. I don't know. Um, But anyway, it just seems ridiculous that there would be that many people there. Um, But the cool part about the scene is that we have our, you know, we have our like 10 little Indians uh, montage. So Salinger's Mm -hmm. there and he's talking to Paolo and he's like, okay, I'm going to give you the lineup of all the people. Yeah, here, um, here comes the exposition dump. <laughs> yep. And so we get Vanessa Brighton, who we talked about a little earlier, who owns 40% of the company. She owns the majority of the shares. Uh, Frank Donovan, um, who's referred to usually as Donovan. They don't talk about him as Frank. They don't really mention what, um, 
you know, what his stake in everything is. Um, but they say that, you know, he's cunning and, and don't let his, uh, you know, don't let the fact that he's a fat slob, um, you know, it deter you from realizing that, you know, he's cunning and, and very smart. Meanwhile, he wasn't really a fat slob by today's standards. Um, right. Then there's Mary Sullivan, who uh, is Julio's secretary, and she's presented without really any fanfare. Um, although uh, Paolo seems to take an interest in looking at her. And then there's somebody named Fletcher. And then there's somebody named um, Danny Murphy. Um, yeah. And then I have, uh, oh, I have one more person written down here. Oh, I don't think was at the funeral. Her name is Sle. It's not Celia because it's spelled S. Uh, I'm sorry. It's spelled C-L-E-L-I-A. And she's, I, the only reason I got that name is because she's in like the end scenes when they're trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with this ransom thing that they have to bring the million dollars to get the diary. That's, that's one of the other people that's in the shareholders meeting that yeah. they don't introduce us to now, but I wrote her name down here because I guess she's part of the group. I guess um, it would be pronounced Clelia, but it looks like yeah. somebody had a typo trying to spell Cecilia, but I've never heard right. the name Clelia and it's, I don't, pretty sure it's not American. Uh, anyway, so then Louisa arrives, that's um, Julio's wife and, um, then they have the funeral and let's see. Oh, this is the first time we hear the word Julius Lambert. Mm -hmm. And you're and you're like, well, this is interesting. They Americanized his name. And we find out later that he actually gave himself that name, um, but not right away. Um, so I guess uh, I'm not exactly sure which scene this is, but. Um, or what's happening in the scene, but I think it's a conversation between Paolo and um, Luisa <clears throat> where we get some more flashbacks. Yeah, they're, they're, they're in the house. They're in Julio's house. And she's sitting in this great big um, paisley covered like lounge chair thing. You know, right. uh, one of the things I miss about Matt is that, you know, I, I, I haven't paid attention to <laughs> the fashion and, and the set design here. Um, but it's clearly, you know, they did they did some work. Um, yeah. Yeah. So some of have, the wallpaper we've right. seen is pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Every time I see stuff like that or I don't know, thanks to him, I notice a lot more stuff in movies sets than i ever noticed before mm -hmm. like yep. rugs and lamps and little weird knickknack statues on the shelf behind somebody when they're talking and i never used to look at that but uh matt and so many episodes of chow chow got me kind of attuned to doing that yeah well i mean but, it's really an, it's an interesting um it's really kind of cool because if you are a filmmaker, you're presented with a situation where, you know, you've got this blank canvas that you have to film this scene in. And, you know, um, you it may be, you know, when you do exterior shots that the set design is pretty much just what's going on 
in the exterior shot. But if you're doing an interior shot, you have to say, okay, well, once I secure this space that I'm going to film in and I figure out where I'm going to put my actors and where I'm going to put my cameras, I have to fill the space with things that make it look like it's a regular space, that it's a space that people live in, in some way Mm -hmm. or another. Right. Um, so as the director or as the set designer or who, whatever, whoever has this job, they have to kind of think through all that stuff and they have to think through it in a way where you as the viewer of the film don't notice it. Um, you need, it needs to be like, Hey, you know, this just looks like somebody's bedroom. Um, I'm not going to pay attention to the details because I've been kind of subconsciously convinced that this is not a fabricated film. This is reality that I'm watching for the, you know, for the time that I'm watching this movie, I'm pretending that it's real. Um, And so the director has to make that happen. And I think the reason why Matt would always bring that stuff up is because he's had experience in having to build those sets. And so when he watches these things, he says to himself, wow, you know, look at the amount of work that went into, you know, putting that, coming up with what that phone was going to look like, or, you know, what, what style of fur coat or wig was this woman going to wear, you know, like, it's just, uh, it's a whole other aspect to um, filmmaking that, you know, people that aren't in the business really don't even pay attention to until you meet somebody like Matt and they're like, yeah, you know, you should pay attention to this because it's really interesting. So, And I wonder if it stands out to us because we're looking at it so much later. Like the, yeah. you know, I'm I'm looking at the shot where she's sitting in that, armchair and he's kind of approaching her from the right side and you see the bookshelves in the background and there's like a big painting on the wall behind her those shelves look kind of weird to me and that painting looks yeah kind of particular to me but if i was somebody in 1969 watching this i might just think oh yeah that's one of the that's a shelf like all my friends have that shelf that doesn't stick yeah. out to me at all. Right. And, yeah, and everybody that's, that's I know has paintings in that style and everybody yep. has chairs upholstered kind of like that. Um, it, it's kind of like when I watch episodes of moonlighting nowadays, <laughs> you know, I, I remember watching them in the eighties as they were coming out and in the eighties, I never once thought, Oh my God, with the shoulder fucking pads. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Or, oh my God, her hair is so big. What is her? Yeah. But I look at it now and I'm thinking, who decided women need to look like linebackers when they wear a jacket? <laughs> <laughs> and how much hairspray did you use on your head? Yeah. Because I was oh, wow. used to it at the time. Yeah, that's so. so true. I mean, even if you look at, even if you look at late nineties, um, film and TV, yeah. you know, in the late nineties, I was, you know, um, let's see, uh, 94, I turned 21. So late nineties, I was in my early twenties and I'm looking at pop culture going, oh, wow. Comparing this to, you know, the shit that I looked at when I grew up, you can see the difference. Like you can see the difference in hairstyles, like you said, like the shoulder pads Mm -hmm. and the high hair and everything. But now if you go back and look at stuff from the nineties, it also still looks, it looks weird. So it's, it's, 
Right. It, it's uh, you're right. Like if you were watching this in 1969, you might not necessarily relate to the way that they decorated this set because you have the same stuff. I guess it depends on your economic status. Cause it looks like this room is decorated for somebody who has a lot of money. Right. Um, and it has, has the, has the opportunity and the ability to decorate their, um, to decorate this particular living room with this much, you know, with this amount of freedom. Um, so either you related to it cause you had it or you related to it because you were aspiring to it or you were jealous of the people that have it, or, you know, you, you fantasized about having enough money to have a house or a room that looked like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we look at it and we say, geez, I mean, you know, there isn't a single thing in this room that looks like anything I could buy if I went to Ikea or uh, if I went to the furniture store or, you know, and, and, you know, you know, to a lesser extent, some of this postmodern, what is it? What do they call it? Mid-century modern is the, is the style, is the, is the design style. And some of that has come back as, um, as, as what they call retro, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's definitely a look. It's got a look to it, but um yeah i guess that's you know the the things that that make the looking at these things so interesting is is partly you know matt and his sensibility for what does it take to furnish a uh, a set like this to make it look natural like the amount of effort that goes into it plus like you said um you know, there's just a 50 year or more difference between the period that we're watching it and the period it was filmed in um, for us to notice, you know, the, the striking differences between the styles and whatnot. So, yeah. Um, but again, I think my point originally was that um, I pay so much attention to, you know, jotting down the details of, of what's going on in each scene that I don't really look at this stuff uh, as closely as I should. So the conclusion we've come to, ladies and gentlemen, is that we miss Matt, but that is not a conclusion <laughs> that is new for us. We've been talking about this for fucking ever. And, spoiler. Uh, yeah, spoiler alert. Um, if Matt actually listens to any of these, you know, maybe he'll realize that, you know, he should come and join us for the next one. Anyway, um, let me move on. So we've got a couple of flashbacks from, uh, Louisa. Um, let's see. Uh, so the first one is that, uh, Julio is leaving, um, to go to the United States to do some work for chemical. And Louisa stays behind. Um, there's this kind of like scene where they wave to each other. She's watching him and running him as he gets on the plane. And at the very end of that scene, she kind of makes a face like, I think this is the end. I think this is going to be, uh, you know, I think this is going to change our relationship in some way for the worse. 
And well, as her. he's boarding the plane, she's waving and smiling at him, and he just kind of scowls at her and then walks into the plane without yeah. waving back. Yeah. And I think the, the trip to America, she had won that by buying or collecting labels off of the international chemical company's products. And he was resisting going because he knew that if he goes, he's just going to be like a little trained monkey for the corporation. And because he's such a uh, idealistic young man who's worried about you know the class struggle and all that kind of stuff, he doesn't want to go. So it's like she's kind of pushing him to go. And in the next scene, it seems like he's still in that headspace. I, I must have missed that. Is it really true that he is going there because she won a contest? Yeah. Is it is it the scene where they're right before they do the the airplane? Yeah, where she's holding the envelope and Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, she's upset because she won the trip to America through one of those uh I don't know if it's kind of like a golden ticket Willy Wonka type thing, or if it's a save enough labels and accumulate the points and you get a trip to America or something, but huh. uh, she's giving it to him. I guess he knows they're giving him the trip as a promotional thing for the company. So they're going to make a great big deal out of it. And he's going to be a, uh, well, like you said, like a, a dancing monkey for the corporation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what if some little old lady won the contest? Like, would they still have the same, you know, agenda for her to, you know, they're not going to turn her into a spokesperson. Like, well, I think the idea to turn him into a spokesperson came after they met him, after he got there. Oh, okay. So, in, I mean, it's not spelled out. Is that when he wins the award, he wins this, they gave him some sort of award in the next scene? Yeah, he shows up and they realize, oh, this guy's kind of handsome. And especially when Donovan gets a boner and he has right. a lot of sway with the company. Right, right. And I think if it was a little old lady that won the contest, they'd bring her out and they'd make a great big thing out of, oh, look how nice we are to this little old lady. We gave her the greatest vacation in her life. And we're going to send her right back home because she's not worth putting on the billboards. <laughs> I mean, I don't think this was a thing for them to find their next poster boy. I think it was just a. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's so funny. Like, I never. I never even caught any of that. I don't know if it was just because I wasn't paying attention to some of the dialogue. Um, mm. Or if it was just because, like, at the, up until this point, Julio is presented as, you know, the face of chemical. And I just assumed that, uh, the you know, the reason he was brought to chemicals because they already knew that they wanted him to be a spokesperson, but no, that, I think that decision came later because after this, he goes yeah. back to Italy and then there's right. the scene where he and his wife are at dinner with that guy. Yes. And he tells him about the job offer and that's when he, the switch flips 
He for, changes, yeah, he changes his name and everything, yeah. Right, yeah. Wow, okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there for me. But uh, because, again, you know, if you think about what happens towards the end where the old spokesperson gets drunk and jumps out the window um, <laughs> because he doesn't have a job anymore. Um, right. I, you know, I guess I don't look into the, I, I, you know, I, it may be just because I'm stupid and I don't really understand or, or, or pay attention to the details. But um, at any rate, <laughs> they, um, the next scene, like you said, is this award ceremony where he's getting this contest prize award and they're, you know, they're doing this, this press with the cameras and there's this woman there who, you know, she does like the chemical slogan. You can always trust chemical, whatever it was, she says. Um, For a second, I thought that that was Vanessa because this is a flashback and I'm like, oh, she looks a lot younger now. You know, she doesn't look as old as she as she does now that she's, you know, 45, which is really old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, so they come back and then there's a third flashback, which you were referring to, which is I mean, like even the woman taking f- photos is hot. I mean, this is insane. This movie. I mean, we watched Matt and I watched this movie called. um a death occurred last night. I don't know if you mm-hmm. if you watched it and followed the podcast, but every woman in that movie looks busted. Like, you know, they they've you know there there are hookers in the movie, and they're you know they're, it's it's a sexual movie to a certain extent. And this movie, it's like no matter where you turn, there's this goddess model, twenty something year old, you know, in the frame. It's 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 crazy. Anyway, so yeah, they're at dinner uh, or they're, they're at some sort of meal. And this guy from Chemical says, we, you know, we want you to come. And no, my name is Julius Lambert. Um, and let's see. Well, he uh, says that after he's told how much money he's going to be making. Yeah, they tell him, like, we are going to give you a house. And here's how much money you're going to make. And, you know, your wife and kids are going to live there and so on and so forth. So back to the present time, uh, Frank comes in and says that there are some documents that Louisa needs to sign. And um, Paolo goes back and talks to Richard and Richard has found the diary that, you know, Paolo was coming to get in the first place before all this craziness happened. Um, But we know uh, as the audience that there are two of these and not just one. And, you know... I found myself saying, you know, well, what about the other one? What about the other one? As I'm watching this and, you know, wondering when this was going to, you know, come, come out later, you know, what, what, what are the differences between the two? Like he doesn't mention when he calls Paolo at the newspaper that he has two diaries, but you see it, you know, he's preparing, he's preparing one. And it's kind of like, you know, when you're in a business, when you're, when you're manually um, cooking the books and you have two different ledgers, uh, you know, that's kind of what it reminded me of. Um, So um, anyway, uh, let's see. 
So this is the first scene where we see uh, Mary. He talk, she talks to Paolo, and you get the impression that she kind of feels like he's profiting off of this of the death of uh, Julio so that he can get you know some sort of you know newspaper scoop or something. Yeah, she doesn't trust him. She doesn't trust him very much, and that will come back later in the movie. Um, so Paolo kind of walks and looks out the window, and all of a sudden he sees one of the two guys that came and beat him up uh, chauffeuring Frank. Um, and he's like, holy shit, you know, now this is the connection that I needed to make between um, Julio and the thugs and what's going on at Chemical. Yeah, and, and he, Frank Don, uh, Donovan is getting into a black Cadillac. Yes. So there's your German title. But there's our Germ- there's our it German doesn't title. Quite fit. <laughs> no, because nobody dies as a result of that Cadillac. Yeah, right? nobody dies in that Cadillac. Um. So, uh, so Paolo uh, runs off to follow the car. Uh, and Richard <clears throat> runs out and says, hey, I found something. Um, but Paolo's like, look, tell me later. I, I don't have time. Um, so Paolo goes to Frank's house. And what do I have here in my, my notes here? It says, um, did he actually follow the limo? Or does he just, did he just research and figure out where Frank lives and just went there? because he knows that Frank was in the car. I think he he followed it. He didn't, they didn't show him following. And the amount of, the amount of time that went by with Richard telling him about this little clue, you know, the other car could have driven, driven off to the point where you wouldn't be able to catch up to it. Well, he drove off before Richard could show him the clue. He was running out behind him saying, Hey, look at this. And no, look at it later. And he's Richard is left standing in the street holding the the note like I was trying to show this to him. But I don't see like in that scene, it's like this wide shot of, you know, this road in Los Angeles with all these palm trees. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't see the Cadillac anywhere. You know, let's see. Camera swings around. I mean, the. The car that drives past is not the Cadillac, and he turns around and goes in the other direction anyway. So, Huh. That is weird, because when he gets to the house, Frank is already sitting at the table having lunch or dinner, whatever Yeah, yeah, it is. yeah. Exactly. It's not like... So, it's sometime later, and he's changed his clothes, too. Yeah. We're looking into this way too much. Yeah. That's for sure. Nobody, nobody really thought that anybody would care. They didn't see us coming 50 years later. <laughs> exactly. They're all dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's the funny part. Um, so Paolo goes into Frank's house and the first thug comes out. He ambushes, he ambushes him with this bottle of milk right in his face. And then he starts a fight. <laughs> I'm watching. <laughs> he starts a fight with the other guy, the guy who drove the limo. And yeah. in, in, in some sort of poetic justice, he pushes the guy's <laughs> head into the kitty litter with like three piles of cat shit in there. This is the most beautiful scene in the whole movie to me <laughs> because he goes in there and he took out 
the other guy who I kind of nicknamed Mr. Potato Head in my notes. Yeah. He took him out just by smashing the milk bottle on his head and the dude, boom, he's on the sidewalk. He goes into the kitchen, throws a bottle at the other dude, and then there's like a, he unleashes the wop foo and beats the shit out of this dude. <laughs> and like you said, it's payback for the vomit stuff that I'd already forgotten about, frankly. <laughs> But as soon as I see that litter box and he grabs a guy by the head, I'm like, oh, dude, this is a payback for the <laughs> for the barf boarding, right? Yep, <laughs> the barf boarding, right. It, it reminded me of the fact that everybody on the planet knows what the word vendetta means, right? Mm, yeah. Anywhere you go on Earth, you say the word vendetta, people know that that means revenge. Right. And it's an Italian word, so – Connect that dot, right? Mm. And here, this guy is, 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 is so perfect. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, and it's important to note also that for people, depending on which version you're watching, you may not mm-hmm. have seen all of the, you know, kitty litter face smushing oh, or right. mushing scene because it actually does switch over to the, to the other version in my copy because I think they cut that out for TV. Just like they cut out the scene where Yeah, and some of the barf stuff would have been covered too. Yeah. The bar the barf was cut, cut out. out. Yep, the barf the barf stuff was cut out too. So now that he's disposed of both of the thugs, uh Paolo walks into this main room. It's like a dining room, where um Frank Donovan is sitting in his all his glory with this ridiculous <laughs> meal, five bottles of wine. Um, and some sort of like designer fondue that he's, you know, he, he asks Paulo if he's ever had the, had the pleasure of, of uh, getting this, having this fondue before. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Paolo accuses Frank of murdering Julio. Um, but Frank says, you know, you don't know the whole story. Let me tell you what's going on. So um, we get another flashback. And now we have the Donovan flashback. Um, first we had, you know, so, so far we started with Paolo having a flashback from the days when Julio was this kind of uh, union activist. Then we have Julio's wife flashing back to the sequence of events that led to Julio becoming the spokesperson for chemical. Now we have Fra- Flanks. Uh, now we have Frank's flashback and Frank and Julio. Uh, well, it looks like Frank is at a drive-in movie and Julio comes and tells him um, or some, he basically, it sounds or it seems like it's kind of a blackmail situation. Like I know that you're gay and I'm going to tell everybody that you're gay unless you, you know. Um. Yeah, it seems to me that the board is getting tired of Julio and they're going to take a vote. And the interesting thing to me is he mentions to Julio that there is a thing in your contract, a morality clause, okay, implying that they have some dirt on Julio that they could use to get rid of him. And then immediately Julio retorts, 
with, yeah, but how about your morality? Because I just set you up with this gay guy who is going to take my side in this and out you to the board or to the public or to whoever. And I'm wondering if they're talking about the same thing. Like if Donovan is saying that we've had you checked out and I know that you're gay. And then Julia says, yeah, but I know you're gay and I have a witness. Yes. You know, because I have in my notes, it's not clear what Julio's sexual preferences are at this point. Maybe uh, Julio is also, um, you know, uh, at least for the time period um, involved in something related to sexuality that would be considered um, controversial, right? Right. But the guy that they bring out to, to you know, the, the this guy in the flashback, it yeah. looks like a guy from Star Trek. I mean, what is with that out? Like, <laughs> he's got this yellow... He he looks like a Vulcan. It's so weird. What what is his purpose? Did did Julio? Where did Julio find this guy? Is was he? Sitting... I and, and see that's another question that I have. Yeah, it's like he knew where to find this guy. This guy who looks like uh, I don't know, like Chekhov just came back from Fire Island, <laughs> but. And, and that's an, and throughout the rest of the movie, I'm wondering about Julio's sexuality, right? And I was going to kind of wrap that up at at the end with okay. some of my observations, but um, just watching this because there's no indication of anything that he's done that would violate a morality clause in the late '60s, right? Unless the flashbacks are shown out of chronological order. Yeah, like we don't Louise's really know. next flashback, did that happen before? But the stuff that that flashback pertains to, I don't know if that would be grounds for firing somebody. But, yeah. So I'm wondering if Frank is implying that I have evidence that you've been having homosexual relations and then Julio fires back. Oh yeah. Well, how about dude here sitting in your car who turns out to be a friend of mine <laughs> that I met somewhere and convinced somehow to help me out with putting you in your place. So. Yeah. How do I know who he is? Yeah. Well, yeah. And you know, later on when, Julio is involved with the three different women. Um, he kind of, well, I mean, when he's with, when he's with Vanessa's daughter, Gloria, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like a humiliation situation, but with the other two, it definitely is like he humiliates his wife. He humiliates yeah. Vanessa. He humiliates yeah. Mary. Um, and that may be because, because he really isn't sexually attracted to them because they're women, you know? Well, I think with Gloria, that was him kind of humiliating and torturing uh, Vanessa. Vanessa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, so, we're jumping ahead. So, um, 
the flashback ends and Paolo smashes all the wine bottles on the floor and leaves. Um, <laughs> the next scene, and, and hopefully you can help me figure this out because I was confused. Um, there's an article in the paper about Julio Lambert's disappearing diary. And right. I'm assuming when they show it in the next scene that it's a draft of a story that they're about to publish. Yeah. Um, that looks like a proof copy that they would send to the editor and somebody has made editing marks on it. Like move this paragraph here, delete this word. Right. Yes, exactly. But and he is the editor, so he would have it. So are they publishing this story about the disappearing diary in an attempt to get the killer to kind of come out of hiding, you think? Is that what is that why they're publishing this, or are they just publishing it because it's news? It's well, they're pretty sure there is foul play involved. And they're not law enforcement, so they can't really open an investigation. I think they're just trying to prod. Okay. But to me, the headline is kind of oxymoronic. I mean, Julius Lambert's secret diary, mysteriously, which is redundant, disappears. (laughs) (laughs) How secret is it if the newspaper is pissed that it disappeared? (laughs) Right. And how do you know it's secret unless you've been digging around like you're not supposed to, but you expect (laughs) that from a newspaper. Right. (laughs) Uh, They could just take a picture of the one book they have and put it on the front page. Has anybody seen another one of these? (laughs) Yeah. Call our hotline. (laughs) We think there might be two, but we're not sure. (laughs) Um. So after they talk about the article, they talk about this other thing that Richard was trying to show Paolo before he ran off to uh, Frank's house. And it's a receipt from a topless club called the Classic Cat. Um, And on the back, there is a request to play the lottery it says Friday 007, $1 for BS. And um, if you're watching this in the theater, because I guess that's where they showed it, and um, you aren't paying attention, you wouldn't know anything. And the BS is the most important part. So um, yeah, that could mean anything. Right. And, and, and <laughs> what, doesn't Richard say something like it doesn't mean the obvious, which is bullshit? I guess I don't know. Like they, they won't even say bullshit in the film, but they'll have an orgy with people getting raped. So that doesn't make any sense to me, but well, that must be like the, the Danish cut. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, mean, I thought it was funny watching the, the version that you had that had the restored scenes. And yeah. it's not that they're just cutting out all the nudity. Because there's a scene coming up pretty quick where it wasn't cut and there's boobs right in your face for a couple, you know, for a few seconds. Yeah. But if you go back and watch 
the composite cut that I have, you'll yeah. you'll notice that if you pay close attention to where the cuts are between versions, whenever mm-hmm. there's nudity, um, it's more on screen. It's more close up. It's more. Um, it's got more screen time yeah. in the cut version, you know? So there, there are scenes, you know, where there are women dancing topless at, you know, at the strip club or in the orgy. But when yeah. the camera moves to a point where it's, you know, kind of sticking on those details, those visual details, that's when they, they cut it away. So, right. Okay, so we'll learn a little bit more about BS and the cat club, the classic cat club a little bit later on. Um, the only thing that's interesting in this scene is they talk about the cat club, the, or I'm sorry, the the classic clat, the classic, the, the, the classic cat, the classic cat um, being a topless club from the waist up. Um, and Paolo says, that doesn't sound very much like Julio. Um, yeah, that's so. There's an there's another there's another hint, hint that you know Julio wouldn't necessarily go. And is that the <laughs> scene? Do we already pass the scene where Paolo says, um, "No, I th- I don't think we've gotten to there yet." Paolo says something like, um, "I really wa- like I'm really now on a quest to find out like." who Julio really was because he was my friend. Yeah. Uh, so wasn't there something said about that when he was talking to Frank at the dinner table before he broke the wine bottles? Because Frank was saying something like, I'll tell you who he really was or. Yeah, but, but there's another, there's another scene where Paolo says, you know, um, in addition to trying to figure out who killed Julio or what's going on with chemical, I really want to find out more about what he was like or what he, what, who he really was, you know, I guess from a personal standpoint, because Paolo was, yeah. and Julio were friends from Italy. So, yeah. So the next scene is the shareholders meeting, uh, another shareholders meeting, and they're talking about the newspaper article. And the newspaper article is about the mysterious missing diary. And um, Vanessa really doesn't give two shits about it. And this is the first time that we see that other actress a character that I mentioned earlier. I forget what you said. Her name was some weird pronunciation of Cecilia. Clelia. Um, Clelia. There you go. And Frank says something. um, While they're sitting at the bar, like I thought Julia was one of your creations, which kind of sets up, you know, the relationship that we're going to find out about between Vanessa and Julio, as well as Vanessa and, I guess all her people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just sitting there talking about the article and Vanessa doesn't give a shit and she gets up and she's about to leave and or leaves. Um, the next scene is Paolo and Luisa driving. 
And Paolo wants to know, you know, why did you guys separate? And uh, we have a new flashback of Vanessa, or I'm sorry, of uh, Louisa in this fantastic nightgown. Um, <laughs> I guess they had already moved to California. She gets up, she puts her robe on, and she goes down and she sees uh, Julio getting it on with some woman in a swing that they happen to have in their house, I guess. <laughs> Cause where else, you know, like she just woke up, she checked on the kids and now she comes down and here's this sexy party happening. And, um, yeah, it's like they buy their furniture at the symbolism outlet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, the, the set, pieces were left over from one on top of the other that they just reused. Cause I think that swing was in that one too. Um, huh. Okay. Cause there's a whole scene um, in one on top of the other where they're at this club, but it's not just a strip club. It's like a club where there's dancing and there's swings hmm. and there's acrobatics and um, oh, maybe. Yeah. And she says something, um, at one point, the other woman, the blonde, she says, am I your putana? Which means whore, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. But I guess that sounds na- not a lot nicer than, am I your home-wrecking whore? <laughs> am I your so, whore? Yeah. That's what they would say now, because we're in am the Am I your the putana? New- and she's giggling about it. And it's like, bitch, his wife is upstairs. <laughs> And what strikes <laughs> right. me as ironic is in the car before we come into the flashback, she's explaining to Paolo, right? The Italian man who knew her in Italy. She explains to him, um, I'm an Italian wife and I take marriage and family unity seriously. Like like he doesn't yeah, yeah, know yeah. that. You have to remind right. him. And then this right. very next. Italy. Right. What do you have to explain to him what an Italian wife is? His mother was an Italian wife, probably. Well, Austrian, technically, but whatever. So, the very next scene, this flashback, totally underscores that from my point of view. Because she goes downstairs, she sees her husband uh, playing around with this, haha, putana, and she just stands there, and when he comes over, she's like, who is she? Uh, tell me who she is. What is she doing here? No. A real Italian wife would have split his nuts with a cleaver before he had time to open his mouth. Okay. And yeah, so there goes. Well, is that like, I guess that's the misconception, right? Because um, in the scene, you know, he basically doesn't even deny that he's, you know, fooling around on his wife. Um, And I guess if you watch enough of the Sopranos, you get a sense that the American Italian or the, uh, the Italian American women who are married to mm-hmm. these people, these men, they do have a very high regard for family and the sanctity of marriage, mm-hmm. but they also understand that these men need to have a gumar uh, need to have something on the side and they put up with it. So is that what's going on here? Or, I mean, cause you're saying that, you know, is it the difference between the American, the Italian Americans and the regular Italian women? Cause the Italian women would not put up with it at all and 
like you said, split his nuts in half. Well, even with the Italian-Americans that you see in The Sopranos, Tony never brought a Gumar home, okay? Right, yeah. That's true. With the kids in bed. And and that's that's an extra layer of no way. The kids are upstairs asleep. And the first thing she does is she checks on the kids. And then she goes down there. And in The Sopranos, remember how Carmela reacted when the Gumar called? Yeah. And spoke to her and AJ answered the phone or something (laughs) like that? She threw all Tony's shit out of the the window. (laughs) Yeah. And when Tony came home, he didn't dare set foot inside. He saw his shit in the driveway and he got back in the car and fucking left. Okay? <laughs> and that's Tony better. Soprano. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you got to keep you, you do what you need to do, but you keep it separate is what you're saying. You keep it away. And that was a phone call. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was just a phone call. That wasn't exactly. I heard something in the middle of the night and I went downstairs and you're kissing some bitches tits up against the wall in the (laughs) living room downstairs from where our kids are sleeping. (laughs) Who is she? What are you doing? Why are you so cruel? Shut the fuck up. Well, like, you know, in his defense, he's been Americanized. So he's he has an excuse, but she hasn't. Or maybe she's been Americanized, too. I don't know. You know. This is not something that an Italian you would expect from an Italian, but now that you know, well, I say that, but just now I'm remembering that the screenplay was written by an Italian woman, so I don't know. All bets are off. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe never mind. I don't know. Well, okay. Um, so basically, in the flashback, Julio basically says, you know, look, stop spying on me. I don't need a, a mother and um, go back to Italy. So we go back to the present day. And I guess Chemical sent a helicopter to pick up Luisa to take her to the airport, which why couldn't she just drive there? I don't know. Um, but <laughs> that's okay. Uh, it's like they want her out of there as soon as possible. As soon as possible. Like, okay, well, exactly. We'll send a cab. No, 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 no. Send the chopper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The cab is way, is way too slow. Uh, so, um, but Mary's there too, cause she's kind of facilitating this administrative task. And after, uh, Louisa leaves, um, and they, give us this gratuitous, um, you know, point of view shot from the helicopter. I mean, like, Hey, we're renting this helicopter. We might as well film from it. Right. Um, the next scene, uh, is Paolo and, uh, Mary and they're at this rooftop cafe and they're talking and Mary basically admits that, uh, for the longest time, Julio, you know, made advances towards her and she fought him off, but she couldn't fought him off. Fight, she couldn't fight him off forever because she was in love with him. Um, and uh, she eventually gave in. And now we get the Mary flashback. And the first Mary flashback is um, a really interesting scene. Um Julio and uh, Mary are alone. They're having sexy time. Um, 
And I didn't pay too much attention to what they were saying because they were taking her clothes off. But <laughs> I have to ask your opinion on this. If you watch the cut that I have where mm-hmm. um, there is additional scenes of nudity, <clears throat> whenever they show Mary's body and they show Julio like getting involved in various parts of her body, they don't show her head and then they cut to her head. So I'm thinking that that wasn't um, Luch- whatever her name is, Paluzzi. I don't think that was her body in this. I don't think so either. Okay. I think that was like we were discussing with uh, Dress to Kill. I think those are yeah. body double inserts. Yes. Because, I mean, there was some some pretty raw footage if you watch the, uh, the, the scenes that were cut. Um, yeah, there was, there was a shot of Furbage, obviously. Yes. And yep, there was. Uh, that kind of – I was kind of taken aback by that. Yeah, but, it kind um, of looked a little bit like um, – it looked like Mary was – kind of okay with it but also at the same time she was fighting him off a little bit and um, then we find out I guess after he stops and goes over to the door and opens the door and there are a whole group of people there yeah there's a party there and he just right on the other side of the sliding door they're all there to laugh at her yeah yeah, and there's like 20 people there. How do you get 20 <laughs> drunk people to stay dead silent so you could bring this girl into the bedroom? And nobody <laughs> say a point. thing, nobody snicker, nobody giggle, nobody shake the ice in your glass. We can't let her in. Come on. Maybe they were playing but, music or something. Who knows? You know, maybe uh, she was so enamored yeah. with Julio that she wasn't listening Yeah, for those extra sounds. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think he says... Uh, after he opens the door, something about her being a virgin, right? So, um, a twenty-five-year-old virgin who will remain that way. So, yeah. So I think that was why you know she was kind of at least half resisting during the the sex scene. Um, yeah. So now uh, Paolo and uh, Mary are still talking. Um, but we move to the next flashback, which is really a weird one and doesn't even seem to make any sense, but Julio is getting ready to film something. And if it's a commercial, which is what he's known for, right? He's known for being the, the face of chemical. Yeah. Um, if if this is a commercial, it's very high budget with all of these, you know, people that are dressed as um, what are they like equestrians or something? Like it's just it's so yeah. odd. So he's on a movie mm-hmm. set or a commercial set or a TV set, and there's this other woman. It looks like the same woman who was at the party when he got his award, but I can't be sure of that yeah i wondered about that too but i didn't bother to look and see if they were yeah, the same it's not really that person. obviously it's not that important but right um 
the dog starts barking and the girl who's going to be in the scene with him says something about how she's nervous and she doesn't like the dog. And he starts yelling at her. And then uh, <laughs> he tells her this dog is to protect me from beautiful women yeah. <laughs> or, or something like that. So there's right. another, you know, little chalk there mark you go. in the, yeah. he might be something else, but uh, yeah, because it's when Donovan or uh, Richard walks up to him that the dog goes crazy. So immediately we know that this dog is very protective or jealous uh, for his owner. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah and right. the blonde is like, Hey, I'm about to have to make out with you for this commercial and maybe put the damn dog away. And he just goes off on her. This dog is to protect me from beautiful women. <laughs> but what? A beautiful women like Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> but what does this have to do with Mary? Was she just there and, and, is relating this experience because she watched it. Cause you don't see her in the scene anywhere. Well, I think she heard the story. Yeah. I, I don't remember exactly how she um, talks us into the flashback. I mean, I, I understand that, you know, they're trying to characterize and, and, you know, and, and set up Julio to be perceived in a certain way. Um, you know, he's, he's, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, Julio's dead and Paolo wants to find out what the fuck happened. And he's going around and talking to everybody about it and getting more and more information on Julio. And, you know, uh, eventually we, we realized that Julio was never dead, but, um, that part of the movie is completely separate and different from what's going on now, which is they're trying to paint this picture of Julio as a, you know, as, as a cad, uh, or as maybe a closeted homosexual or not even necessarily closeted, but just, you know, trying to stay under the radar to a certain extent. Um, yeah. And that goes back to the question I had about the chronology of these flashbacks. Right. Was this something that happened before or after the confrontation with Donovan at the drive-in theater? Or if it was after, apparently they're friendly enough now to sit and talk and you mm. know, at least be uh, civil-ish towards each other in, in public. Yeah. And when Donovan walks up, he's like, yeah, I want to see how you kiss. You know, okay. Was that a was that a joke because he knows how he kisses, or was that him just kind of prodding him, uh, metaphorically, because <laughs> of, right <laughs> because of the conversation that they had at the drive-in. I think well, the yeah, I, I think it boils down to they're showing us how much this guy has changed. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's and, that's the that's the important part, right? Yeah, and I guess it's also to underscore his uh, treatment of women in general, as yeah. if we haven't gotten it already. If we haven't figured yeah. that out yet. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But then well, after the dog attacks the the actress, he has 
uh, he wants the dog killed. And it's like, dude, make up your mind. Right? <laughs> He's just an asshole, I guess is what it yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Paolo's going on this journey of discovery to find out who hated Julio enough to have him kill everybody. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Yeah, you're never going to find the the culprit here because uh, right. it's based on suspicion. But, well, yeah, I guess, you know, again, we've talked about this before on other, on other episodes, but we're looking at it with this additional, you know, mindset that comes from 50 extra years of, of you know, the culture evolving the way it has and looking at these hints and these clues about Julio's homosexuality. And it's quite possible that the filmmakers added those things in, but didn't expect anybody to pick up on them. I don't know. Um, we're certainly picking up on them. So, but like you said, yeah. the most important part here is that the filmmakers want the audience to realize that Julio not only is a cad and a jerk and a misogynist, but he's also, um, he, he's changed. Um, and Paolo is slowly but surely finding that out from hearing all of these stories about how Julio really isn't the guy that he used to know. Um, mm -hmm. and that will be important at the end. So, um, after uh, Paolo and Mary finish talking, <clears throat> the next scene is in the classic cat. I like how they have these dancers behind velvet ropes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like it's a museum display or something. It kind of reminded me of the the ropes they have around boxing rings. Yeah. So I was kind of waiting for them to start punching each other, but they didn't. <laughs> When the scene starts, we get some additional like dancing footage, nude dance or topless dancing footage that was cut from the media set version. And um, but like you said before, you know, when the scene, the scene with um, the Robert Guillaume lookalike and uh, <laughs> Richard uh, talking about the. Um, the receipt and the lottery, there's a woman in the background dancing um, and you can see her boobs, but again, they're just kind yeah. of obscured enough so that I think it made it through um, the, you know, the, the Italian censors, if this really is an Italian broadcast. So, um, so what we find out is that um, someone named Bill Steiner um, is the BS on the back of this receipt. Mm -hmm. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but eventually we realize that Julio has never gone to this classic, classic cat club. Or if he did, he has nothing to do with the receipt. Other, well, I don't know. So why does Julio have this receipt? It's basically a receipt for somebody having lunch um, and drinks. And then on the back, it says, you know, what lottery number they want to play um, for this person named uh, Bill Steiner. And, mm -hmm. 
you know, eventually we find out why Bill Steiner is involved, but how did Julio get this receipt in the first place? Like, why does he have it? That was, well, that is still unclear to me. Okay. We find out later that Bill Steiner is, uh, and here we go into spoilers, but Bill Steiner is the actual body from the burned up Cadillac. Correct. That everybody thought was Julio. Right. We know that Salinger found that receipt at Julio's house, and it has something to do with this, uh, like, illegal lottery numbers game thing that's going on. But it confused me more because when Salinger gets back to the office, he says, put out a notice in the numbers section of the sports page. So is it an illegal underground lottery thing or not? If you're talking about it in the newspaper. Well, that's an interesting question. And I can tell you that at least from my standpoint, I know part of the answer to this, which is um, in the Italian American uh, culture over here that at least my dad was involved in um, what they would do is they would publish in the newspaper, a three digit number that had something to do with the racetrack, like the horse races from the previous, from the previous day and the underground lottery used that number as its source for having its own like number betting business. So basically my dad's uncle. So you're talking about somebody who at this point probably would, if they were still alive, would be like 150 years old. Um, (laughs) This guy, he used to take bets from everyone in the neighborhood. They would come and say, I want to play, you know, one, seven, five, or I want to play eight, four, three. And um, nobody knew what the number was going to be, but the next day, they would take the th- you know they would take three numbers from three horse races and publish it in the paper and that was the number and if you got that number right you got paid out and uh, my uncle or my great uncle um he um was the guy who took the bets and he was the bookie so um huh. this sounds like something very similar to what they were doing in this movie um and it's not necessarily illegal in that they publish the number. It's illegal to be betting on the number. Right. Um, but I don't know when they talk about it being the lottery or the numbers section, I don't know how that relates to the legitimacy part. Like for what I remember, what my dad explains to me is that the legitimacy aspect for him was that, or for his, for his uncle was that it was published in relationship to letting people know what the horse races were in a, in a particular time period. So people who, who bet on horse races, who didn't stay to watch the race would know whether they won or lost. But, um, so the numbers were generated by and published for something totally unrelated and random from day to day. 
Yeah, and in this and in people this movie, just chose to bet on it. Right, right. And in this movie, I okay. don't know what that context is. I don't know if it's the same thing, or if it's something else, or if they really did just choose to publish, you know, a random three-digit number, knowing that people were, uh, you know, I don't know. It it's it's kind of a gray area for sure. Um, but okay, so Julio found this guy Bill Steiner. And decided he'll be my double yep. for the, the the my death thing. So does that mean Bill Steiner was playing that number? Or, well, he said he was some wastrel, right? He was like some helpless, hopeless junkie or something. Yeah. And, so and maybe again, just to, to get on Steiner's good side, he said, I'll play these numbers for you. And that's what the little note was for himself. Yeah, and then Richard pays the guy off because Bill Steiner hadn't come back in to pay up for the numbers he was betting on, and Richard pays him the $5. And then after he pays him the $5, he gives him the information. So, but again, it's like, first of all, did was Bill Steiner involved in the car wreck on purpose? Like, was it one of those situations where he's like, yeah, um, I don't have anything to live for. So give my family all this money and I'll do what you ask. Or did Julio, you know, overpower the junkie and kill him and put him in the car wreck? Like, you know, it's, it's really not clear at the end of the movie how and make sure he was burned beyond recognition yeah it's not and yet somehow the magicians at the funeral home or the 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 morticians (laughs) and at least in the scene where they're putting the makeup on the corpse i mean this is like going way back like a couple hours by now (laughs) yeah yeah conversation yeah but those people putting the makeup on the corpse it's not like somebody was even holding up a picture of julio saying make it look like this no and to me, that's the biggest plot hole of the film, because then all his friends and family and co-workers and everybody comes in one by one looking down. Yep, that's Julio. Yeah. Well, they may have when, done that in the beginning. And by the time we saw it in the film, it was like they were within the last, you know, 30 seconds of finish putting the finishing touches on his <laughs> face. You know, they just needed to fill these lines in and then they let the press in to take pictures. So. Well, at what point would a mortician say, fuck it, tough shit, close <laughs> casket, end of story? <laughs> you can't well, pay me enough to... <laughs> well, chemicals probably, you know, footing the bill here, so... Well, yeah, there you go. They paid for the coffin and picked out the tombstone and everything else, too. But... Right, right. Well, uh, so, again, <laughs> we're jumping ahead, but we basically find out in this scene that... Um, uh, Bill Stein is the person mentioned on the back of the receipt and um, hold on let me go back to my uh, notes here um, okay um, but the next thing that happens is uh, uh, hold on They put an ad in the paper, like you just said, in the numbers section 
for Bill Stein to come forward and contact the paper. At this point, they obviously don't know that Bill Stein or what is his name? Yeah, it's, uh, Bill Steiner is actually dead. So um, now uh, the next scene is uh, we we finally meet Gloria, who is Vanessa's daughter, played by um, your schoolmate or your schoolmate's mother. Right. Ramina it's so weird to it's so weird to say that because I'm looking at this woman who's, you know, she's looks like she's 18. I saw a trivia thing somewhere that says she was 16 when they filmed this. Yeah, it's right there on the oh, wow. TV. And I haven't fact checked that with uh, Ramina's actual birthday. Well. Uh, so I kind of hope it's not 16, but yeah, I know because her daughter was born the same year I was. And that's just a year after this movie was made. So that would be kind of creepish. No, she was born in 61. No, 51. So she's 18. Okay. When this movie came out. Well, that's a little bit better. Well, and there's a, and there's like some brief nude scenes with her in the pool later on, but. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so basically Gloria based, you know, basically Gloria says that, uh, you know, mom's friends are my friends. And because, you know, at this point, uh, Paolo, <laughs> Paolo has come to find out what's going on, uh, a little bit more. He wants to find out more about, um, Julio. And I guess he went there to talk to Vanessa, but Vanessa isn't home. And Gloria's there. And I mean, Vanessa obviously has a lot of money and has multiple locations where she lives. And her daughter has free reign of the house and the money and everything else. So they go to this uh, hippie room. Um, That's what I wrote in my notes. So there's like at least, I don't know, 40 to 50 people hanging out in this room where they're watching a quote unquote rape film. Um, I don't know why they would want to watch a rape film. Like, I guess it's just to reinforce the fact that the youth from this time period is just so edgy and so different, you know, and so unconventional. I don't know. Um, They they don't actually show the film that they're watching. So at least that got that kind of sensibility. Um, Right. But then we go to a flashback scene and uh, Vanessa is uh, sitting uh, in a lounge chair with her ridiculously weird Pac-Man glasses on. And um, (laughs) we have uh, uh, Julio and Gloria who are uh, swimming in the pool and um, Vanessa is kind of watching what's going on and... um, yeah, I lost. I, once again, I lost my my video feed. Oh well. Um, what can you do? Go by my notes here. Um, so I think at some point, maybe Julio takes off some of Gloria's clothing in the pool, and we have some nudity. Um, and again, in, in my version, it's intact because we switched to the the other version 
where the scenes were cut. Um, but there's really nothing much going on in this scene. And like we mentioned earlier, Julio doesn't do anything specific to Gloria to embarrass her, but that really isn't the point, right? The point is to embarrass Vanessa because that's kind of the relationship that Julio's in uh, right after that, you know? So um, after that flashback finishes, we get to the orgy uh, in the hippie room. And um, Mm -hmm. this is, you know, I think that what they were trying to get across here is that all of these guys watched this rape movie and then they reenacted it in the hippie room. Um, But it turns into an orgy and it's like you said earlier, it's gratuitous. It's really goes on for way too long. Um, And after a bunch of different scenes in, you know, and it's all part of the cut version. Like, you know, if you're watching the media set version without the edits, you wouldn't see any of this, but there's lots of like, various sexual positions and, and, and angles and whatnot. And then at the end, there's this kind of aerial shot (laughs) of the entire group of people in this giant convulsing kind of fluctuating flesh pool. You know, it's just the weirdest. (laughs) It's really weird. Like I, I, yeah, I, I didn't really know how to to react to it at all. It was it wasn't sexy. Let's put it that way. Um, it kind of reminded me of that scene in Raiders of the Lost Dark when Indiana Jones is going down into that uh, in that place with all the snakes. Yeah, and he looks down and you see all those snakes writhing all over each other. It looks yeah. kind of like that, but yeah. this is interesting to me because all the girls are just all hanging out there for the whole world to see. Yeah. And I'm seeing like in this one freeze frame, I'm seeing like five dudes and they still have their jeans on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So uh, that's not how an orgy works. No, nobody want no sausages were allowed in this particular yeah. scene. Yeah, exactly. It's not fair. And there are quick shots of girls, uh, messing around with other girls, but there aren't any of, guys messing around with other guys and i bring that up because i wonder if by hooking up with gloria julio was introduced into this orgy sex free love thing and that might have uh helped reorient him in another way interesting yeah could have so Maybe. Well, I mean, you know, the very first thing that happens to him when he gets to America after he gets the award is that Frank starts kind of flirting with him. So, um, yeah, you know, that's where things kind of started, I guess. But so uh, Paolo and um, Gloria continue to talk for a little bit. And uh, Paolo says, look, um, I don't really believe that the car accident was an accident. And um, Julio says, you know, because because they start talking about how good of a driver Julio was. And Gloria says, you know, you're right. Um, We were driving 
the other day or, you know, a while back and we almost got in a crash. And then we go into this flashback where, um, they're driving and they lose control of the car. They almost crash. Um, and Julio brings the car to the mechanic to tell Julio that there's a hole in the brake line and that they fix it. Um, now the next thing that happens after the flashback is that Gloria tells Paolo that the car Julio died in was a company car, a chemical company car. So I'm not really sure how these two things are connected. What car were they driving in, in the flashback? Do we know? Like, is it relevant? Well, the car that the red convertible that he's driving in with her and crashes. I think that car was a gift from the corporation. And the mechanic confirms that the brake lines were cut. It's not like just normal wear and tear or uh, faulty manufacturing. He's like, somebody put a hole in your brake line. Right. And then later, I think she tells him that the car that he died in, the, uh, I guess it was white at the time. Before they uh, found it all burned up. I think that was also a gift from the corporation. So she kind of connects those two that way. Okay. Meaning if somebody sabotaged the first one, somebody from the corporation was trying to kill him. But I don't know. That kind of. Because the corporation didn't set up Bill Steiner to die in a fiery car accident. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i guess the question is was there some other you know um was there some other plot um to get rid of julio besides julio trying to fake his own death i don't know Uh. well i think maybe Okay, we know that Donovan, when he sent those guys uh, out looking for him, uh, he admits that we didn't, my guys didn't kill him, but they did rough him up. Right. And we know that Vanessa was angry or scorned or whatever because he had started messing around with her daughter. So maybe she was trying to kill him and just didn't pull it off before he decided to disappear himself. Okay. Well, that could be. It could be. I, mean, that... I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You know, right. I think somebody okay. was trying to kill him, but he also decided to fake his death just to get out. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Because, because the thugs and that whole kind of, part of the story, you know, is, is important to remember. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, the next scene is pretty annoying. I don't know if they put it in here just to give 
Romina Power some screen time, or if they wanted to fill time, but they go out driving. Um, where are they going anyway? Why did they go? For, did they just go for a ride? Was there a point to why Paolo and Gloria were, were going somewhere in the car? I, I didn't. They were on their way to the junkyard. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. You're right. So they're going to the junkyard to see if they can find out if there was any tampering on the car that was in the accident. Okay. So they go for mm-hmm. a ride in this white Mustang and Gloria picks up these two hitchhikers and then they stop for gas and they, they emasculate Paolo and they put him in the back seat and tell him to sit there. And, um, the one guy takes out a switchblade. Um, and then, uh, they, let's see, they pull the car over and they get out and, um, the one guy pulls a knife on Paolo and Gloria drives away with the Mustang, leaving Paolo with the thugs, but Paolo fights them off and pushes them down the hill. And, uh, it's just ridiculous. I, the whole thing, I don't really know what the point was for all of that. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure either because we already know that she's kind of a flighty flaky ding dong of a girl. And right. We already know that Paolo isn't a pushover because, I mean, he took a beating at the very beginning of the film and we saw him uh, beat up the driver slash thug at Donovan's house. Uh, maybe it's just more filling and yeah. or filler. What I, I don't get is how after she takes off in the car... And then he unleashes the Wapfu against these two guys. <laughs> it immediately cuts to him walking into the junkyard. The junkyard. He walked there, I guess. Like, like it was just around the corner from where they happened to stop. Yeah, either that or a whole bunch of time went by and he just decided, hey, I got nothing better to do. I'm just going to walk to the junkyard. And how yeah, is you it get this guy from Italy knows where everything is in L.A.? Yeah, it's not like he Google mapped it and called an Uber. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> so. the thing. Like, one of the things that really I've noticed in rewatching this is that you forget that Paolo is Italian, that he is a foreigner in a foreign place. You just kind of think of him as, you know, he's a newspaper. Why would a newspaper reporter from Italy be in charge of writing stories about people from this area. What it would, you know, don't you need as a newspaper reporter, don't you need to know about the town that you live in and about the nuances of the people and the, you know, the, the local government and blah, blah, blah to, to write a good story. Like, how does he know any of this shit? He's from Italy. Like, you know, yeah. And apparently he knows Salinger from the California Herald separate. Well, independently of him knowing, Julio. So is he part of some journalistic exchange program? Yeah, right. That's what I was thinking. Like where, maybe they, he's like a foreign correspondent. 
(laughs) (laughs) And later, um, what's her name? Vanessa mentions that he writes pretty well, even though it's not his native language. Okay, so he's writing this shit in English? (laughs) Okay. And uh, I don't know. (laughs) It seems like anything else he had planned goes out the window. Yeah. Because of Julio and the situation. Right. Ay, ay, ay. Who knows? Okay. Um, anyway, so they're at the junkyard and, uh, well, he's at the junkyard and he asks for the car and the, the car's been squished into a cube. So there's no way that they can figure out what happened to it. And then Gloria shows up and he punches her, slaps her or something for leaving yeah. him. Yeah, that's like the most gifable scene in the whole movie. And, uh, yeah, that's the definition of bitch slap. He just unloaded on her. And who can blame him? You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. The first time I saw this, I thought it was his car. But then I remembered, wait a minute. He just, he's not living there. Yeah, and he doesn't live there. At the end in the that- car. Yeah, so that was totally her car. But still. Do that to some dude? No, no, no. Nah, that's that's messed up. Not that it's right, or uh, should ever actually do it. But. Right, but you can un- you can you can empathize. Um, right. Okay, so uh, the next scene, Vanessa shows up at the paper, and she gives them a twenty five thousand dollar check to put a large ad in the paper. On a specific page, which is the page where they have the story about the diary. And I'm so confused at this point about this. Um, hopefully you can explain it to me. Um, question one is, hasn't the story already been published? And B, if it hasn't, how does Vanessa know about it? Do they have to send a copy to uh, the chemical people? to make sure that they don't have any objections to it before it goes out. Is that what's going on here? I don't think journalism in America is supposed to work like that. Right. Or did. And I think it's published because she grabs the paper off his desk and opens it. And so what is she trying to do? Like, what's the ad going I think to cover she's, up? I think it's kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink type situation where she's going in there saying, yeah, I want a full page ad. And I'll give you $25,000 for it. And, oh, look, this is the page I want it on. I think that's her roundabout way of saying, I want this story to go away. And I'm not really here for an ad. I'm just using that as a uh, as cover for slipping you this money. I think the subtext is, I'm giving you $25,000 to drop this story about right. the damn diary. But okay, so yeah. the assumption then is that the paper is going to spend more time on this story than just that one article. Like they released an article, she's got the paper, she brings it in to show them and make a hint towards the fact that she doesn't want any more of this out there. Uh, the assumption is that it's not a one and done story, that the paper is going to continue to report on this situation with Julio because his death happens under some sort of suspicious circumstances. Right. Is that what you you think? Okay. Yeah. 
So, and I think they're worried about the suspicious, well, the suspicion that the newspaper is dragging up because they have tried to get rid of him and they have done some underhanded shit to right. him. Right. Okay. And That's true. even if they know they didn't do it, they don't want people poking around asking questions. Like, yeah, because, so. yep. Right, because they'll un, you know maybe there'll be some information about Frank that doesn't that they don't want to get out and Vanessa that they don't want to get out, um, and there's all the these other brake lines in his other car, right, and yeah. the homosexuality yeah. and all that stuff, right, yeah, because Donovan or Richard Donovan probably still doesn't want that being totally public, right. I mean, it appears like the other board members already know, but they all have their own stuff to hide too. Yeah, right. Okay, so, so uh, Paolo and Mary um, have another conference, another hangout. This time they're getting ice cream. And um, he tells her about Vanessa's check. And he says, you know, please trust me. The next scene, and that, that's like a really quick scene. The next scene, someone from immigration comes to investigate Paolo and inspect his passport. Um. And Paolo is like, well, obviously somebody from chemical called immigration to send you down here to harass me. And the immigration guy says, yeah, you're pretty much right about that. Um, and that's it. So I guess, you know, it's, it's just basically a scene that says, you know, we're turning up the heat here. Cease and desist. You didn't take our, our bribe. And so now we're going to, you know, put the screws to your guy. So, yeah. Um, and I, to me, the detective that goes in there looks like uh, Bruno Kirby doing an impression of Columbo. Did you get that? I'm not a Columbo person, so I wouldn't get the reference. <laughs> okay. But for all those of you out there still listening to us ramble, hopefully you did. So. <laughs> Okay, so Salinger gets a phone call from Bill Steiner. Yes, so Salinger gets a call from Bill Steiner, and he responds to the ad, and um, he says, come and meet me at this remote location. So uh, Richard and um, Paolo go out to this location to meet uh, the quote-unquote BS, and it's... Is it like under, I think it's under a bridge or something, right? Like I, I lost my video feed, so I don't know. But They said it was under a bridge, but to me, it doesn't really look like it's under a bridge. I mean, there's definitely a bridge in the scene in the background somewhere, but at least that's what I remember. Um, so Richard is kind of out in the open waiting for this exchange of information to happen. And Paolo is hiding, not really hiding, but he's just hanging back. And all of a sudden this vehicle comes rolling in and I think it was an ambulance. Was it an ambulance? Yeah. We hear the siren first and yeah. then we see this ambulance flying towards him. And, and it comes in and just runs Richard down and kills him. Yeah, I think it aims for both of them, but Paolo is a little more spry and gets out of the yeah, way. definitely. More successfully than Salinger. And I think that they were really targeting 
Paolo more than Richard because Richard doesn't really know that much. But then again, I guess yeah. he knows enough. So, um, now, can you imagine Paolo going to the payphone and calling nine one one because his uh, his partner just got run over? What do you tell the nine one one guy? Uh, actually, don't send an ambulance because that's what just ran us over. <laughs> yeah, Maybe we send an ice cream truck with a stretcher in the back. <laughs> yeah, if you send another ambulance, we're just going to run away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd be yeah, traumatized for a, life. Please send a milk truck or something. <laughs> please send the friendliest looking. <laughs> or send a horse and wagon. Yeah. Uh, okay, so. Let's see. Paolo goes to meet Vanessa, um, who basically, you know, pretty much admits that she was involved with Julio uh, in a relationship. And then we have a flashback. Um, And it's Vanessa and Julio, um, I guess, when they were first kind of, you know, in the nice or happy stages of their fling. Uh, They flirt with each other and they dance. This was, um, I wrote in my notes, probably at the same awards party where she met him for the first time. Um, But it's not obvious. I mean, Julio's wearing a tuxedo and we didn't see Vanessa in the original flashback when he gets the award. So we don't know what she was wearing, but I'm assuming that I think this picks up right after the other flashback. Okay. Because he mentions it. Well, he or Richard mentions that he was just telling him how much he loves his wife. So that's oh yeah, we saw that in the the previous flashback. So I think yep. this is part two of that same flashback. Yeah, so he's not but, really a hundred percent, you know, changed yet. He's at this point, he's still, you know, holding on to you know, the Julio from Italy, but again, the flashbacks mm-hmm. aren't presented in sequence because we're going back now to, you know, this, the original party before he moves to Italy. So, um, then we need, we, we, we see this guy's name's Charlie and apparently he must've been the guy that was replaced when Julio came over. Um, he is drunk, he is belligerent, he is yelling at people. Um, and then they start this conga line because I guess he's <laughs> he's like yelling at everybody and it's awkward. And so Frank just kind of makes some clapping noises and gets the band to pick up the pace. And then everybody starts doing the conga line and Charlie jumps out the window to his death. Um uh, and then we go back to this weird visual of Paolo standing behind Vanessa, who has one eye completely done in makeup and another eye completely normal. And the normal eye looks right, look, looks correct or looks, looks good. And the one that she spent all this time adding eyeshadow and, and mascara to looks like insane. Looks like she's some sort of. Frankenstein. Um, she also mm-hmm. has a really bad hairdo. Um, it's like super frizzy and all over the place. 
and it's. I kept wondering when she was going to comb her hair, and she never does. So, um, anyway, uh, second flashback, um, we see Julio and uh, Vanessa having sexy time, and Julio starts mentioning some woman named Christina, and she's like, "Who's that? Who's that? Who's Christina?" Oh, I know. He said it. He said it in his. He was dreaming or something. He said it while he's sleeping. That's what it was. Um, so he says something about, "Oh, Christina was this, you know, stripper that I really liked." And don't be jealous. Just pretend to be her. Go over there and strip for me. Um, and so Vanessa goes over and does her strip tease, and it's very awkward. It's like watching, you know, a soccer mom do a strip tease. <laughs> Like she just doesn't seem like she's into it and we're not into it because we've been watching all these other really young women do sexy things. And now here's this older, uh, 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 quote unquote, older woman of 45. Um, doing Who's younger her, than us. Yeah. Um, I'd kill to go out with a 45 year old at this point. Um, <laughs> but uh, she's doing her thing and uh, she does a pretty good job. But eventually Julio just starts cracking up and laughing in her face. Um, and that's the end of the flashback scene. And uh, so the next day, Vanessa decides that she, it's time to fire Julio. Um, and she says, you know, I want you to write a story about Julio, but I want you to write it from my perspective. And then she starts dangling this kind of book publishing deal in front of his face. And we start to see kind of where this is headed with Paolo. Um, if it's not obvious, it will be obvious the second time you'll watch it. So um, the next scene is they're at a board meeting. It's the normal board members. Um, and they tell Mary, hey, you know, you don't really need to take notes here. Um but as she's walking out, because she's so suspicious of what's going on, because um, this is present day now, um, she turns the tape recorder on to secretly record uh, their meeting in the open with a running tape recorder secretly. Yeah, that's pretty ballsy, too. Because <laughs> anybody looking at it sees the reels turning. Exactly. And she doesn't even try to cover it up or... No, she just starts it and walks out the door. I guess it was going to be, oh, I didn't know. What did, I didn't know it was running. Um, yeah. So they sit around in this meeting and they talk about how there's this anonymous blackmailer who threatened to reveal uh, the information in the diary uh, and asks for a million dollars. And they decide uh, that they're going to go ahead and pay this ransom to get a copy of the diary because everybody is... Um, concerned that there are in, there's information in the diary about them. And this actually is kind of a callback to blood and black lace, because I think that was the same thing. Like there was a diary that one of the models had and she was killed. And there's a whole bunch of people that had dirt that she had dirt on. And so they were all suspects. So it's kind of the same thing here. Um, yeah. But um so, so the next scene, Mary goes, I guess she must've gone back in and got the tape and brought, brings it to Paolo. Um, and she plays it for him and it gets cut off at the end, but they have enough information to know that Fletcher, who has not really been in the movie thus far is going to be the guy who's going to deliver the money 
and he's going to leave his house at 10 o'clock. So Paolo has enough information no, Murphy, to know that. Murphy is the guy that's. Is it Murphy? It yeah, Fletcher is the oldest British dude, the older British dude. Oh, okay. So I got that wrong. So it's Murphy. Okay. Yeah. So I guess Paolo just figures out where does Murphy live and goes there at 10 o'clock because that's all he needs to know. Um, well, we know he can find any place in Los Angeles. Yeah, even really though he doesn't easily. have Google Maps and he's from a different country. Um, Whether it's first name, whatever, Murphy, and who the fuck, car, junkyard, you know, he can find <laughs> He's a journalist. I mean, you know, That's tracking exactly. down clues and That's digging up information. No doubt. Yeah. So the next day, Murphy leaves uh, his house. Paolo follows him. Um, and we kind of have this interesting kind of um, callback to the opening scene where um, now uh, Paolo is the one who is. Uh, the one who's doing the following and somebody else is being followed and they go back and forth between cars and they're driving. And eventually um, they give you this um, aerial shot of Marine land, which I think has turned into sea world by now. Um, Cause I went in and actually looked it up and I, I may be wrong cause I don't know the details of the production credits, but there is a SeaWorld in San Diego, which isn't that far from Los Angeles. Um, and it's got the same layout as the one that they did a helicopter flyover for, for this scene. Um, the dolphin exhibit and that whole thing. So I think that's, if you look up the SeaWorld in San Diego in Google Maps and you zoom in, it looks pretty much the same from an aerial shot. Anyway, I thought that was cool. You could actually go to SeaWorld and walk the indoor section where the dolphins swim up to the windows and recreate this moment in film history. Uh, yeah, and take pictures of it for Instagram. <laughs> so all of the people that follow Carnal Circuit can like your picture. Right? <laughs> all negative three of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably fewer people than were in the bleachers watching the fishy go splashy yeah. show. That we're about <laughs> Did to you see. see how small that pool was that they used to put those killer whales in? That was terrible. Like I'm and just, how empty the parking lot was. I mean, they must have gone on cleaning day or something when it was yeah, closed, or they bought it out or something. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely empty. Um, I've seen more people at a garage sale than were sitting in the stands watching the <laughs> show. So. Well, you've seen one like, you know, SeaWorld show. You've seen them all, I guess. Um, so uh, Murphy is walking on the inside of this dolphin exhibit where they have like a dolphin show. Um, it's it's kind of like an aquarium where, you know, the, there's windows and you can see the fish through the windows. And it's kind of like a circular curved walking path. And... He passes a window where there's another person um, and it's the ransom man. And he's dressed up, um, you know, kind of like a hippie, but he also has a, clearly a wig on and a fake mustache and glasses to hide his identity. Um, a poncho. Yeah. And a poncho. Right. Um, so they make the exchange 
Um, they put the, uh, or, or Murphy puts down the suitcase and this person puts the diary down and then checks the suitcase to make sure the money is there. And the notes that I have are I'm not sure how you can fit a million dollars into a small briefcase using ones, fives and twenties. Oh, you notice that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, wait, I, those are fives and this yeah. is supposed to be a million bucks in a suitcase. Yeah. Uh, you definitely need a duffel no. bag if it's going to be a million in fives. Yeah. They must have blown all their budget. Yeah. Out that's what I Marine think. World. <laughs> or either that or it's not real money. But if it's not real money, why wouldn't you just make hundreds? All right. So. I guess. I don't know. So. Um, let's see. Paolo comes over after um, the stranger run walks away with the briefcase and he knocks out Murphy. I'm not exactly sure why. Like he and Murphy are kind of on the same team, but whatever. Um, and then he chases after the stranger. And then there's the big reveal that it's Julio. Um, and we get, you know, this last scene, the scene that starts with the... Uh, the car, the car following, getting to the the marine land and the exchange of the briefcase and the diary, and then the chase, and then the scene where it's Julio, um, and he explains, you know, his motives. That's this. This is a very Jalo esque part of the movie. Um, whereas up until this point, it was a character study. There really wasn't that much action except for the action that was going on between the characters. Um, but now we're kind of into this last, you know, th this last, you know, attempt to add some interest and interesting final bits to the story. And um, Julio says that, you know, he faked everything, basically what we've already said, that Bill Stein was used as the corpse. Um, and Julio offers mm -hmm. Paolo the million dollars and says, come on, let's go back to Italy. Um, but Paolo says no. And he starts to chase, the chase ensues. And I guess, you know, Paolo has gotten to the point, finally, after all these flashbacks, and now seeing that Julio faked his own death in this whole time, that he'd been trying to figure out what happened to his friend. It's been a complete waste of time because his friend is, there's nothing wrong with him. He faked his own death. He's like, you know what? Forget it, man. You're not my friend anymore. I'm going to, I guess the idea was to uh, apprehend him or capture him and send him to the cops so that he gets what's coming. But in true Jalo fashion, that's not what happens because a chase ensues and Giallo, uh, Giallo, uh, Giulio eventually falls to his death, as they often do in these films. Um, and I think at one point the cops. I, are I like there how too, as. So. Go ahead. Yeah, as soon as the police see the guy in the poncho running with a briefcase, they start chasing him. <laughs> yeah, they damn must have learned that in Police academy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If he's got a poncho on, can't be up to any good. He's at yeah, least a, well, at that's least he's obviously a not his briefcase. <laughs> right. He, he, he doesn't have a job. Yeah. Uh, okay. So next scene, uh, we see Vanessa and Frank and Paolo, and they're all in the morgue, and they're identifying the body. Um, 
And I guess Frank says something about how he'll pay for the arrangements or he'll, they'll chemical will, will take care of whatever it is that needs to be taken care of. I wasn't paying attention at this point to the details. Yeah. Something, um, something like that. Make sure it's him this time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, they go outside and, uh, Vanessa, Oh no, before they leave the morgue, I think Vanessa makes the offer to Paolo again to say, you know, Hey, you know, I could really help your career here. Um, you should come with me, um, and let me take care of your career or whatever. Um, you know, with the understanding that obviously she's the cougar, she's going to expect more from Paolo than just writing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's important for his career, for him to make a decision that's favorable. And he's seems like, you know, this whole time he's had some scruples, some morals, some, some, uh, conventions that he was sticking to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, eventually we realized that, uh, you know, everybody's for sale. It's Los Angeles. Um, they go out to get in the cars and Mary's out there and, you know, you kind of think it's funny too. Cause the first time I watched or the second time I watched this, I forgot the ending and I'm like, Oh yeah. So, you know, that's, what's going to happen. Paolo is going to, you know, tell Vanessa to screw off and drive off with uh, Mary. And then I'm like, Oh wait, that's not yeah. what happens. <laughs> um, so Paolo says uh, Vanessa offered him a job but she gets very angry and drives away and he pleads with her to stop. Um, but she's gone and, uh, he gets in the car with Vanessa and they drive, start driving away. Uh, she's got this very satisfied look on her face and he looks like he's about to go to jail. Um, (laughs) and the, I want it all song starts playing again as they did in the beginning. And, uh, just to finish this up because there's not much left. Uh, the final shot is Gloria. She's sitting in the car, some new car somewhere. She's got these driver goggles on her head. And I guess the whole point of that is to basically just reinforce the fact that, um, she's going to be in Paolo's life just as much as Vanessa is going to be because she's already met him. She knows that mom is going to, take another trophy and I'm going to have, I'm, I'm going to have access to him. So she's, she's in the car. She's kind of got this little smile to herself. She, they don't actually show her like getting in and driving and following them or anything like that. They just show the, they, they, they just show the highway and then that's the end of the movie. So, well, she doesn't really have to follow them. She knows where they're going. Yeah, exactly. She knows that he'll be around. And I think that pretends that uh, things aren't going to work out as well for Paolo as he thinks they are. Because she's going to start coming between him and Vanessa. And Vanessa's going to try to get rid of him. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but similarly to how she tried to get rid of Julia. Exactly. So it sets up that the, you know, the the cycle repeats itself. And I guess that's the circuit of the title. There's the circuit. Yes. Yeah. It, 
takes people in, it changes them, it uses them up and tosses them out. And uh, Julia was a first and now it's Paolo. And I like the the part where he's talking to Mary at the car. You know, he comes walking out of there and Mary's all kind of happy, like, okay, let's go. He's my new boyfriend. <laughs> right. right? Are you going to drive? And he closes the door and she like immediately knows. She gives she him knows. this, you've got to be shitting me look on her face, right? Yep. And, um, and he says, uh, she offered you a job. Well, she's going to publish my book, blah, blah, blah. And he admits that money is like a drug, but he thinks he can handle it, quote unquote. And yeah. then immediately it's like, dude, you're dumping the 25-year-old redhead future Bond girl for the cougar that chases Rock Hudson and Liberace. That You're not fucking handling it. That's your first clue. Yeah. Dude. So. Or him there should be a sequel yeah there, that there should have been a sequel i mean it seems like they spent a lot of money on this movie yeah i guess uh i mean when you compare it to like deadly inheritance right that movie with the uh-huh. the family and the railroad and it's like yeah, two or yeah. three two or three rooms one or two locations um this is way more of a budget, especially to be filming all these exterior scenes in Los Angeles. So, um, well, see, I don't know how much it would cost. See, that's where talking to Matt would come in handy. Yeah. How much does it cost to set up a camera in a parking lot or outside some, well, like that car hot place they were having ice cream at. I mean, would you even really need to get a license to film that or just do it guerrilla style? Well, and we don't really know whether or not that would, that that may have been filmed in Italy anyway, but I'm wondering like, you know, um, the scene where Paolo is um, sitting at the table in the hotel in the very beginning, or the two times that he's sitting with Mary at the outdoor cafe. I think those are um, definitely, you know, locations in America um, because I don't think I think people who know the area would know the, the you know the the way that the the, uh, the skyline um, of the different buildings is the signature you know LA environment and not necessarily some other urban environment it certainly looked like America but uh yeah, the other thing I was going to say is, again, when that uh, I Wanted All song starts playing again, it's the first time I remembered to myself, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Bruno Nicolai uh, composed the music for this, and I haven't been paying attention to it. And it just reinforced the fact that, you know, um, either this wasn't one of his better films as far as a composer or he didn't care that much or the style of the music really wasn't important compared to the way it is important in, you know, once Morricone started doing uh, soundtracks for Argento, things kind of changed, but I don't know. I think, I think the music kind of fits the film because it's a little bit jazzy and, 
and and uh, dancey, and it has that main theme. But it's, I guess the the film doesn't have any atmospheric moments for there to be music, you know. It's like right, like we were saying at the beginning. There's there's really no, uh, there aren't any scary parts. There's not a whole lot of tension or suspense that happens at right. all. Uh-huh. Yeah, and and if you go back to say, Les Diabolique, where that we covered a few mm-hmm. episodes ago, there are some very tense and suspenseful scenes, but there is no underlying music. It's completely silent during most of those. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But yeah, it's it's just it's not it's not a horror movie for sure. So, no, no. Okay, well, I think that's. We've reached the end of the of the deep dive. Um, what do you think? I mean, it's certainly got its eye candy, so that's it's got that going for it. Yeah, um, it was entertaining to watch. I mean, it kept me interested, and I have watched it, you know, a few times and haven't really gotten sick of it. So that's saying something. What? What I find missing in this film is my uh, my investment in the characters. In, in the beginning, when we see that Paolo is willing to take a beating for somebody that he doesn't even know who this guy hiding on his roof is. He hasn't connected it to, you know, this is my old friend Giulio from Italy. I I kind of want to root for him. And okay, turns out this is his friend. Okay, and by, uh, I guess it's by proximity or by relations, I kind of want to start rooting for Julio too. But then the more we learn about him, the more I don't like the guy at all. And yeah, I guess there wasn't enough establishing his friendship with Paolo before the story starts like if we had seen more flashbacks of Italy and reason that uh, Paolo and Julia were such close friends. I mean, there is, I mean, there's just the one scene where he shows up at the strike and, you know, Julio's being the, the hero hero of the working man. And Paolo's there and sees it. And apparently he knows Louisa and he, you know, Okay, so they know each other, but I didn't really get the feeling that they're friends. And why is he going through all this trouble trying to find out who killed this asshole, you know? Yeah, they don't really show any other other flashbacks, anything related to the relationship that those two guys had. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you... uh, you don't really know where to put your your allegiance when you watch yeah. this. So I guess you can still be, well, for me personally, I was just kind of neutral about Paolo. The only person I really uh, cared for or was rooting for was Mary. Uh, yeah. Partly because we saw how she was uh, humiliated by Julio 
and how she was actually trying to help uh, Paolo and she was doing things that were, I don't know, kind of risky if you consider these are corporate people that have no problem uh, trying to arrange the death of people that piss them off. Right. Uh, but then they, they totally kind of shit on her at the end of the movie too. Yeah. Which I guess is part of the story. You know, if you want it to be like the cycle continues and yeah, you know, there's gotta be, uh, collateral damage. I yeah, guess, yeah. Right. For the plot, right. for the, the point to be made at the end. Uh, and plus I thought she was, you know, she was my favorite one to look at in the film. And I think I even said that back when we talked about black veil for Lisa, Yeah, you know, she's, and I'll watch her read a phone book. But. <laughs> there's something about, for me, there's something about her teeth that I, I'm not, that I don't like. Ah, oh, dude, that's sexy. <laughs> A woman with a mouth like that, she can eat you alive and then pick her teeth with your femur. That's hot. <laughs> oh, man. It's got me wanting to watch that Thunderball movie. I mean, I've seen probably three quarters of all the James Bond movies, but I've never seen Thunderball. And she's and, in that uh, one. She has single-handedly put that one on my list. Yeah. There you and go. she's not even like the main Bond girl. She's like one of a gaggle of you know, B-grade Bond girls in that movie. So yeah. I'll check yeah. it out. It's like, uh, it's like anything that Barbara Boucher is in, I, I, I need to watch, especially from that time period. Like she's in, she's in some Star Trek episode. Um, where she's some sort of alien robot, something or other. Yeah, she makes out with Captain Kirk. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. So I, I like it too. It's I think, like you said, it it keeps your attention because there's so many characters, there's so many scene changes, there's so many flashbacks. So you're, you know, whether you like it or not, you have to pay attention because you're trying to follow the story. Um, nothing lingers or, or drags on for too long. Um, it has some Jalo elements. And what's interesting is I scored this and I think it got something like a 73. So, Jeez. um, yeah, for a 1969 movie where there's no killer, um, there's no black gloves. There's, uh, you know, it, it, it ticks all the other boxes enough to get, uh, a 73. So um, I'll go back and, and look at that again and make sure that that's right. Because after talking about it for as long as we have, it doesn't seem like it should get a score like that. So, Well, the body count is what? One? Well, let's see. I considered, um, yeah, I didn't give it credit for body count because it was only two, oh, really. Okay. If you consider uh, Bill Steiner and Richard. To be the two bodies. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot he died. Yeah. They're not even part of the, 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 the main story. They're just like you said before collateral damage, yeah. but and we never even see Bill Steiner live or dead. So, right. We see him with the, with the mortician goop on. 
So, yeah, I, I liked it too. Um, again, just like the last film we did, um, and probably, I'll probably say this about most of the films that are coming up in the next few episodes, I would like to see a restored version of this, uh, especially for how visual it is and how many you know exterior shots they do. I think it would be cool to see... Um, see this movie in more detail. Um, I liked it. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. You know, it's, it's hard to know who to root for. Um, I think, I think that was the point though. I think, you know, they were trying to get across this idea that, uh, you know, Hollywood will eat you alive, you know? Well, I think they went about it in a kind of weird way because making Julio the, I don't know, the, advertising poster boy for a chemical company that makes deodorant and I don't know, shampoo and shit, I guess. Why not make it Hollywood for real? You know, why not say, Oh, we discovered this guy. We put him in a TV show and then cut to later. He's a big movie star. And that would justify the amount of paparazzi that show up at the, yeah. the viewing. Yes. But on the other hand, that would also kind of be biting the hand that you kind of want to start feeding you. You know, if you're a German-Italian production company that's going to L.A. to make this movie, I bet while they were shooting this, half the people involved with this movie were running around town like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to get bigger deals and new projects and make connections and network and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. Right. So putting out a movie about how Hollywood chews you up and spits you out <laughs> might not be a good way to start relationships in home. Um, can't really think of anything else to say about it. Um, I guess that's kind of it. Anything else you didn't get off your chest yet? <laughs> uh, no, I think my chest is pretty light right now. So. Yeah. I will watch it again. Um, it will be a while because I've watched it recently a couple of times over, but uh, I will definitely watch it again and I will look for it to be released uh, in a better version. So yeah, if this came out in like a Blu-ray or something, I would watch it again. You know, if it was uh, all smoothed out and it doesn't necessarily have to be restored to the extent of this restored version. I mean, they could cut out a good two minutes of hippie orgy stuff and I get the idea. Right. But, it's not necessary. But that's the yeah. way it is now with the marketing these things like it's the fully uncut version, you know. I can't imagine the popularity that this movie might have had uh in the th- movie theater. I can't, you know, I can't see it running for I mean, I don't really know how things worked in the late 1960s in Italy in movie houses, but you know, nowadays obviously a movie goes in and out of the theaters in two or three weeks. Um, If this movie came out in 69 in Italy, how long would it run for? Would it run for a few months before it went out? Or would that really be more like how popular it was? You know, if people kept going to see it, then um, they'd keep running it. I don't know. I think IMDb has the IMDb Pro 
service that you could subscribe to where you could look in and find the budget and the box office and all that kind of stuff. But uh, apparently they keep all that information behind a paywall. So, yeah, you got to get a membership for it. Well, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that was uh, Carnal Circuit 1969. Thank you all for uh, spending your half of a day with us to listen to us talk and uh, <laughs> just want to remind everybody that we are on Facebook. It is the Ijalo Chow Chow podcast. Obviously no volume two anymore. I'm going to change the name there and um, go over there and get in touch with us through that group. Uh, request member access. will get you in. You can also email us at Jalo Chow Chow at gmail.com. Don't forget to go to thejalloscore.com. That's my website where I uh, rank and evaluate Jalo using criteria that I arbitrarily came up with. And uh, <laughs> I hate Matt. <laughs> I hate Matt .com. Uh, Just to remind everybody that Matt is still part of the program, even though we haven't had him on for a while. Go over there and check out what he's up to. And uh, I think that's it. So uh, next time on the show. Uh, I would like to do a film that was released in 1965 by Luigi Bazzoni. Now, Luigi Bazzoni is the director most famous in Giallo circles for the film called um, The Fifth Chord. He also directed uh, Footprints or Footprints on the Moon. But this was his directorial debut, and it's called The Possessed. Uh, it's also referred to as La Donna del Lago, which is the Lady of the Lake. Um, and La Donna del Lago, I think, is the name of an opera. So it's a very, like, common Italian phrase, right? I haven't heard of that opera, but um, sure, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not much of an opera guy. Oh, here we go. Okay, I just looked it up. La Donna del Lago is an opera composed by Rossini. <laughs> we digress. So uh, that's going to be next week. We're going to cover that. Um, there's a fantastic copy of this film. Um, so for everybody who has been kind of pissed off at the fact that you can't get copies of the films we're talking about, I forget which place uh, released it. Uh, it might have been Arrow, but there's a Blu-ray of it and... If you've seen The Fifth Chord and if you've seen Footprints, but you haven't seen this, you should know going in that it is just as gorgeous, like visually, as the other two movies that Bazzoni did. Um, it's black and white, and it's really good. It's it's definitely another level up in quality than we're used to here at Jalo Chow Chow. So I'm excited to talk about that one. And that'll be for next time. So that's it. Al? Thanks again for uh, all your insights and for hanging in there today. And um, anything else um, you would like to add, sir? Uh, not really. I'll just say Buon Anno Nuovo to all our listeners, which is a good new year or happy new year. And thanks for the 
time to sit and chat and talk about these movies, Chris. I always appreciate it. Yeah, sure. And look no forward problem. to doing the next one. I appreciate you hanging in there because I think it's like one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning where you are. So two o'clock. It, it's a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it sure is. All right. Well, until mm-hmm. next time, everybody, we're going to say ciao, ciao. Mm, ciao, ciao. <laughs> I was waiting for that. 